You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. On the surface, Robert Marling had everything a man could want. No matter what happens, I want you to remember that I love you. Okay. But underneath it all, there was a world that intrigued him. Down here, I'm the chairman of the board. How can you be friends with a man like Stanner? You don't even know him. Seduced him. I've got 24 hours. Bet it all. And robbed him of everything he had. Can you say it yet? My name's Robert Marling. I'm a gambling addict. Now. He saved me. Saved you? He could have run. He didn't. He's about to get some help from a most unlikely place. No one believed I could see things. What do you see? Things that will happen. A psychic named Heaven. What's going to happen tonight? Your standards, good luck, charm. Good luck, charm. I haven't seen anything. Don't lie to me! I don't like it! Stanley is going to be bluffing on his last hand. Do you have any money? we got to do this exactly how I discussed it. And I keep seeing 4 a.m. You can win, but only by 4. God help us. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Mr. David Kittredge. Here to tell you that heaven is indeed a place on earth. Thank you, Belinda Carlisle. And making his debut appearance on the Projection Booth is Mr. Spencer Parsons. Hello. Happy to be here. This week, we were looking at the 1998 film from director Scott Reynolds, Heaven. It's a New Zealand film that features crime, sex, and the supernatural. It's the story of our titular Heaven, played by Daniel Edwards, a transsexual precognitive stripper who works for a violent member of the underworld, who's played by Richard Schiff. Moreover, it's the story of gambler Richard Marling, played by Martin Donovan, his wife, and her lover, a psychiatrist. And, believe it or not, both of these storylines are all tied together into one larger piece. We'll be discussing how these intersect as well as spoiling any surprises that the movie may hold for people who haven't seen it yet, so be warned. Though I should also warn listeners that Finding Heaven isn't easy, and I guess I mean that in a lot of ways. It's available pretty cheap on DVD from 2011 here in the States, and I will link to it in the show notes. So go on over to projection-booth.com and you will find a link to it. I think it's rendered about seven bucks or something incredible. What a bargain indeed. Spencer, was Heaven a first-time watch for you? Yeah, I actually hadn't even heard of it uh, when uh, when you first told me about it. But I'm a big fan of Martin Donovan, and you know, have enjoyed uh, one visit to New Zealand a long time ago. So uh, it was interesting um, to check out, and uh, I was I was really uh, you know pleasantly surprised. I really love this movie. How about you, David? Well, it was my first time watching it. My, my personal take was, and it's weird because I'm talking about this on a podcast ostensibly for people who love this film. Yeah, I, I feel like, you know, I, I was, last time we did this, it was the movie Perfume and I had to come on and be like kind of the killjoy and be like, yeah, I like parts of it. 
This one I found a very mixed bag. I'm very glad I saw it, though. I think there's a lot in it that is worthy of discussion. So I'm glad that it's being discussed. I'm glad that because I never heard of it and I'm reasonably savvy, especially with independent films and especially films of the 90s. Apparently Miramax picked it up according to the logo at the top of it, uh, though I just had no idea that it, it even existed. But it does a lot of really interesting things. And uh, I'm glad that we can talk about them. Yeah, I don't even remember when I first heard about this movie, but it was one that was on my radar for a while, and I'll talk a little bit about this later, but it was really difficult to find for a while. Um, I ended up probably renting it on VHS, or maybe I caught this on cable, but yeah, I don't know how this got on my radar, but this was definitely... At that, I think this was around the tail end of the independent film movement of the 1990s. It was 98, and it was definitely at the tail end of the uh, lounge music revival that was happening. We are post-Swingers, we are post-Four Rooms. So when this opens up with a big lounge song by Henry Mancini, I'm like, okay, this kind of actually grounds it in a place in independent cinema for me. But it's got a crazy interesting cast you know uh spencer you mentioned martin donovan and if folks aren't familiar with martin donovan he was kind of i guess maybe like a muse to director hal hartley who was one of the darlings of the independent film movement back in the 1990s he was here's his toshiro mifuni to kurosawa or uh i don't know von Sydow to bergman or he was the he was his go-to guy yeah, they made, I want to say, seven or eight features together, and then Donovan ended up being a director, and I think that's more of what he's doing these days. But yeah, there were a lot of movies that they made together, and so we've got him, we've got Richard Schiff, these two American characters, and then we've got a whole boatload of folks from England, from New Zealand, all in here. And as we're watching this again yesterday, my wife is like, I know that face. Who, who, and I'm like, it's Carl Urban, honey. And she's like, oh my God, because Carl Urban has become a staple of every science fiction mm-hmm. franchise around now. So it, 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 or fantasy, I suppose, too, with, uh, the Lord of the Rings movies. But yeah, it was, uh, great being able to see him in, in here as well. It is so funny you said that because I was watching it with my boyfriend and my other friend who's gay. And my friend was just like, that's that's the doctor from Star Trek. I'm like, it is not. And I was like, I was like, no, it is, it is. And I'm just like, what? He, what? So he, so he's like really young and hunky and has like frosted tips. And it's like that. That cannot be the same actor. Looked it up. It's like, oh my god, this is Bones McCoy. My mind was flipped. I was just like, wow. Okay. So the the second half of the movie, I watched with a very different, I don't know, point of view, <laughs> at least on that character. And I like that we have this kind of weird mix of these American and Kiwi voices in here, and that a lot of the theme of the movie seems to be people coming to Auckland who aren't from Auckland. Even when it comes to the way that Heaven and and Sweeper, the Carl Urban character, they are not also from Auckland either. So it's a, a center, it's a bringing together of all these people, and then this weird like crime underbelly that we're experiencing as well. Well, it's kind of interesting because uh, a, a fair number of uh, films from Australia and New Zealand uh, from that period, and I think actually even up to the present, they have a, a tendency to cast uh, you know foreign actors to help break out of uh, the local the local market, and so quite often you can get these these strange combinations of, of accents in uh, an Australian or, or New Zealand uh, movie, especially when there's any kind of international co-production. And there's also a history of 
dubbing out uh, Australian accents um, on, on certain films to make them more palatable to, uh, you know, the, the U.S. and British markets. Yeah, that, I mean, that goes back to the Australian new wave that, like, you know, of the 70s with Peter Weir. I mean, you look at movies like The Last Wave with Richard Chamberlain. And, you know, I mean, there are a bunch like that. Or even, you know, the the I was like, the antithesis of that would be like Mad Max, where they literally dubbed over everybody, even who they were. I mean, that's Australia. It's not New Zealand, but it's like they dubbed everybody over. And, you know, it, it's it's fascinating how Australia during this time uh, and, and we're, we're past this time in the 90s, of course, but um you know, they really wanted to be a force of international cinema and they, they became one in, in a very kind of interesting way in like the, the late seventies and through the eighties. Yeah. And I find it, I find it kind of uh, interesting how in this film that accidental approach of, of putting together this co-production to, you know, make a film then actually has an interesting uh, sort of artistic result to it in making this, this uh, city that's kind of nowhere where they're, people who are at different levels of uh, outside of a mainstream. So I mentioned Heaven at the beginning, and Heaven, she's kind of our main character, though I would say that Richard is really vying for being our main character as well. And Heaven, as I said, she's transsexual and she is a precog. And so much of this movie, and I guess one of the reasons why I would say heaven is definitely the main character because we are seeing so many things through her point of view and also through her fractured time. And that's the thing that I like about this movie the most is the way that it plays with time, the way that it plays with editing, the way that you can get conversations crossing one another, that you start with something that's going to be at the end of the film, but then in the middle of the film, you think maybe you're seeing it again. There are so many fake outs for this that I think the writing and the direction from Scott Reynolds and then the editing of it really give you this whole different thing. It could be told in a linear way and it would maybe be something that we've seen a thousand times before, but because of the way that they put this together, I think that it really breaks the mold. That's my favorite thing about the film. And it's a kind of trickery that uh, normally I'm a little bit skeptical of. Uh, I like Christopher Nolan well enough, but I'm actually not very convinced by, you know, the way that he plays with time. Um, uh, other neo-noirs around the time that this movie came out, and I definitely consider this to be part of the, you know, the 90s neo-noir cycle as as much as uh, a kind of independent film. And there are a lot of neo-noirs made within that. But there were there were a number, uh, you know, like Steven Soderbergh's Out of Sight and the Limey that uh, really flagrantly played around with uh, fractured timelines or not quite. I guess uh, like uh, neo-noir adjacent, you have a movie like uh, The Machinist that works by similar means. But what I really like about the way that it's done here is that, um, you know, less like those other movies that work as a kind of puzzle to sort of keep one step ahead of the audience. Uh, this is a little bit more like the way that Nick Rogue would scramble time uh, in that it's about the consciousness of the characters and passing that kind of uh, experience onto the audience. It's so funny you say that because one of the things that I was talking about, you know, with the people that I was watching this with was, you know, when you, when you mess with time, you still have to maintain a narrative arc. Like, in other words, you don't necessarily have to be temporally 
uh, faithful to the plot line, but you do have to be temporally faithful to something. And when you're not temporally faithful to the, to the plot line, you have to be temporally faithful to emotion. Uh, you look at a movie like Lost Highway, uh, which this movie act blatantly rips off a couple times. So we'll get to that or Twin Peaks Fire Walk with Me or, um, you know, even, uh, you know, kind of other, I mean, Memento was later, but these movies like, you know, or, you know, going back to what you were talking about with the Limey, uh, which basically was exactly like point blank, John Borman's masterpiece from the sixties, like done in the, the exact same way. And even Soderbergh says, yeah, I ripped off. Point blank. Um, you know, you have to maintain an emotional arc and that has to be consistent. And that was my criticism of this film. I really do. I agree with you. I think that the, the way that it plays with the narrative and the time is dreamlike and interesting and wonderful. But I question whether or not it was doing that and it paid for it. You know, whether or not that was doing that in a way that benefited the film or whether that was doing it in a way that actually detracted from it. And I, I believe me, I'm no fan of just like doing A, B, C, D, E. But toward the end, I was just like, okay, you're being clever now. Stop being clever and tell me a story. I bought into that full force. And then I will also say that the more I watch this, the more I appreciate that they're doing that. I don't feel that this is that kind of muddying the water just to make it appear like it's deep, like something like a Pulp Fiction or a Jackie Brown, where it's just like, okay, uh, yeah, we're, now we're going to see things from five different perspectives. Okay, BFD. Well, I, would, I mean, I would argue both those movies actually did buy it, like that, that they did actually make an emotional arc. I mean, Jackie Brown is very sneaky. That's a very sneaky one because basically you're ramping up to this climax and then, and then the filmmaker literally is like, okay, hold on. We're going to take this really the long way around. Like, like just when the energy seems to be building, he pulls the rug out and he's just like, okay, wait a second. We're actually just going to glide for a minute. We're just going to like do this like very roundabout leisurely paced thing where you think that it's going to be this big crazy climax. But it does work. Quentin Tarantino's like that. Like, Inglorious Bastards is another example of, of a movie that kind of hops around, but it still kind of tells one story. I think it's interesting with Heaven. Th- there are elements of what you're saying, and I think there's a really good argument to, to say that they did pay for it, that, that, that this does work as an emotional arc. But I don't know. I mean, every time you do that, you're asking the audience to kind of jump with you. Every time you pull the rug out from the audience, you're asking them to be like, okay, I'm doing something that's going to momentarily yank you out, but go with me here. I think by the end of heaven or even by like halfway through, I was like, okay, calm down. Just calm down a little. That was just, I mean, maybe that was just me watching it, but, but you know, it, it really felt a little too cool for school in a couple of places. I, I, I think it would have benefited a little more from just a little more linearity, but not entirely linearity, if that makes any sense. I'm kind of going the mushy middle route here. I guess I, I want to uh, plant a flag for how uh, well, you know, for me, the uh, the, the time frame represented um, the confusion of precognition as uh, a way of perceiving the world. And we, we have, for instance, these moments uh, early on, even before we fully know what the deal is, where, where uh, for instance, Heaven says to uh, Martin Donovan's character, uh, you saved me, and they've just met, 
and you know he has no idea what uh, what she's talking about there's there's this way in which that kind of uh, sense of out of place in time where something that is a memory for her and is now in her past because she's experienced the future uh, at, at an earlier moment in her life gives gives her this impetus to say this thing to him but he doesn't know what it means yet and that was like one of the cues for me that that made the kind of hopscotching through time and it works so well because the structure of the movie kept doing that and also kept you know working with our expectations with the story where it would seem to be proceeding in a linear fashion and yes we'd get the rug pulled out from under us but then not too long after generally it would reveal that kind of moment of uh, you saved me, you know, the, the, the sense of, you know, how that works and what that means. And I, I guess I was, I was more sold on the overall time scheme than I was with the, the sort of, you know, Lynch influenced or Lynch ripped off, uh, visions, uh, that she has that are the, the more traditional kind of way of representing precognition or dream state or some sort of ESP in, in films. I will say that I've never seen a film rip off Lynch as accurately as this one. I mean, just from the shots, like the shot of the burning was like, oh, that's wild at heart. You know, the shot, <laughs> a couple of other shots was like, oh, that's like Lost Highway. The, oh, that's Twin Peaks Fire Walk with me. It's like they must have studied this movie, these movies like like crazy. And I don't hold that against it, to be honest, um, because it's done really well. And Lynch did it really well. If you're going to rip off somebody, rip off somebody who does it really well. I have to say it. I But being a Lynch fan it did kick me out of the movie a little. I was like, oh, okay, this is firewall. Like, like the scene, I remember the shot in the bed where he lays down and the lights change. I'm like, oh, okay. You know, I know what you're doing. I know where you're coming <laughs> from with this. It's like, you know, it's, it's, I wish, I wish the direct, I mean, I know this was, was this director's first feature or I know he'd done a number of shorts. It, it, it seems very much like a very, very ambitious, very, very smart film literate guy. But, and I hope later we can talk about kind of like what, what's underneath it because i think there are two levels to this which is one is the story with all the people and what happens and the plot and everything and the other one is what is the film trying to say and that's an interesting conversation to have because that was more my issue with it but uh, let's uh let's keep going <laughs> i don't want i don't want to derail it so quickly I agree with the way, you know, this was why I wasn't sold on those um, dream or flash forward sequences that were more obviously and properly from uh, Heaven's point of view that are uh, that are more Lynchian. And those also, as, as much as I agree with you that uh, that they mimicked Lynch very well, I was all, I also agree with you that I was pulled out of the movie by those. And I, I much preferred that the, the time the time scheme uh, as a way of representing um, the precognition to the, the sort of more hoary, old fashioned and, you know, Lynch adjacent, um, you know, vision sequences. I mean, to, to be honest, I mean, he I wish he had kind of mimicked early Peter Weir, you know, or going back to the Australian filmmakers or even, or Nick Rogue. I mean, those kinds of visions I think would have played a lot better in the world he was creating uh, to be that fantastical and that flashy and that kind of like, you know, the dude sitting there flicking the light. There were a number of times when it, he was just too cool for school. But again, you kind of forgive that to whatever extent you do forgive that. 
because there's so much in this movie that that does work and is clever and that I haven't seen in other movies. So it's you know when I said when I came on it was like a mixed bag. It's like this is a really mixed bag. This is a, this is this is a salad with a lot of stuff and a lot of it I don't like, but there's stuff in it that's fantastic and it's and it's and it's definitely worth watching for film fans. I want to talk about time on a macro level and also on a micro level because as a macro level we are dropped into this situation where we don't know anything about these characters, which is exactly how you start every movie. But you can start a movie and then learn everything that you possibly could learn about Heaven or about Richard through actions, through dialogue, through things that are on their desks, those kind of things. But I like the way that we learn the information. We're introduced to all of the characters within the first 14 minutes of the, the running time, but that we don't necessarily know, like, Okay, how did Richard Schiff, the Stanner character, how did he get to be where he is today and what is going on? And then we slowly kind of figure out as things are going on, oh, he and Heaven have been together for a long time and they refer to Heaven as his rabbit's foot, his lucky piece. And okay, oh, he won the lotto. Okay, now I understand he has used her power for who knows how long in order to get to where he's at. And then we learn more about Richard, the Martin Donovan character, and his wife, and his former lawyer who was his friend, his doctor, psychiatrist who was his friend, and now is sleeping with his wife. And I just like the way that the information is doled out on that sort of a level. And then when we get to, and we can talk about, you know, we've been talking about the heaven visions and those kind of things, but then we get the time on a micro level. And my favorite example of that is when Richard calls up his doctor, the, the psychiatrist, and then the psychiatrist whose name is Dr. Melrose, when Melrose calls Jennifer, who's Richard's wife, and then it seems like he's playing back the conversation that they had because he reveals that he records his conversations. It seems like he's playing that back to Jennifer, but he's actually just telling her. And then the filmmaker is cutting in those recorded bits. And it's like Jennifer is responding to Richard and the way that they go through that, that to me is like a masterclass in editing and the way that we can disjoint time in that way separate from the the precognition you my dear i got to love this love what i got a call from robert this morning what did he say he wanted a big favor what did you say well um, why don't you tell me what it is first i'm being fucked by jennifer i almost said so am i Cut the shit. What did he say? She's trying to screw me. Her and Whipper, my friend. They want money I don't have. I think she's going to go for sole custody of Sean. On what grounds? On the grounds that I'm a gambling addict and an unfit father. But you've stopped gambling. Yes. He's lying. So what do you want from me? A letter. A letter, a testimonial about me and Jennifer. Saying what? Saying how I was a gambler, but I'm not now. But he is addicted to gambling. I don't know. Tell them. You tell them how. As she slept around behind my back when we were married. Christ, we both came to you for 
counseling when we were together. You know her. I left him because he gambled all her money away. And I never cheated on him. I need you to help me. Of course I will. What? Thanks. How could you do that? Have some faith. I got him on tape. The whole conversation. You recorded it? I record all my conversations. You're not taping me. Well, of course not. Think I want a record of me talking to a patient's wife? Especially one who has multiple orgasms. Don't talk like that. I better ring with her. I love this sequence. I thought this was really good. And what is it? He does it twice, I think? At least twice, and then there are three scenes in a restaurant, and only one of them doesn't seem to jump in, back and forth in time. One of the things that made me really excited about that, and I, I guess this opens up, you know, precognition beyond the level of just seeing into the future. Uh, I don't know that this is necessarily intended by the director, but it, it sort of opened that up into a psychic experience that seemed to be dipping in and out of the various characters' consciousness. I mean, I'll, I'll say that I tend to see the whole movie, especially by the end, as being from Heaven's point of view. Uh, even though it's frequently disorienting, it seems to me that it also makes sense that her experience of the precognition is disorienting. And so then a, a moment like this seemed to be taking it all to another level where she is, uh, she has access to... Uh, the points of view of the other characters uh, within this, and that in a way uh, she is editing the movie. There's there's like a kind of wonderful uh, meta cinema quality to that. The phone scene in particular that uh, that I, I really loved. I really genuinely disagree that Heaven is the main character, and if she was, then there's there's some issues. I have issues with with that. I I once read her as. Um, if not the main character as the narrator, if we could put it that way, um, I, but I, I you're being very. I guess I, um, I I agree with you uh, that that's that that's problematic. That that is a distinction. I think that Robert Marling, the uh, uh, the Martin Donovan character, ends up being treated more by the plot as a protagonist. But I guess I I, I still tend to see it uh, in the way that one might uh, read a novel where the the narrator is uh, a distinct character, but not necessarily uh, the protagonist, the the one the, the, who has the biggest arc uh, through the story. And and I, I have I have some issues with how and why that would be the case. Well, I get it. I mean, I think that I mean there are certainly throughout history, like you know, Moby Dick is the first one that just popped in my head. It's like you know, there there are all these stories that have kind of like narrators or or people through whose eyes we're seeing the work that are not the main character. The issue that with Heaven, God, I, I you know, I know how this is going to come off, or maybe not. I don't know. It's you know, but there is a rather disturbing argument to be made about how this movie treats the women in it and how the movie treats this transsexual character. And it is not exactly thrilling. It would have been wonderful to see kind of a Jackie Brown with heaven. You know what I mean? Kind of like she's the one kind of pulling the strings. She knows what's going to happen. So she kind of sets things up and she makes it happen and all that stuff. That was not this movie. This movie was basically Martin Donovan's character, Robert Marling, and his arc and what he goes through. And every, there are other characters in it and other stuff happens. 
but really the arc is his. I mean, it's, it's like you look at the arc, you look at where people come out and really it's kind of about him and his journey. I agree with that. And I, I find that to be tricky. I mean, ultimately, ultimately as I, as I reconstruct all the way through, it does actually work like Jackie Brown in the sense that heaven is pulling the strings uh, throughout in a way that works out for Robert Marling, but Robert Marling remains the, 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 the one who gets the kind of protagonist energy, uh, you know, for the film and the most, you know, time and emotional attention. And so one of the things, you know, that, that comes up in terms of a representation is we do get the, the magical trans person, the magical person of color who, uh, who has the precognition that makes it possible to work things out for the white guy. That is exactly right. And, you know, in the world where Green Book just won the Best Picture Oscar, I mean, there's there's just a lot of talk about this among filmmakers out here in Los Angeles and and, and probably all over the place. You know, th- these are tropes that kind of would have gone by, and certainly this came out in 1998, so I don't think there's probably any thought put toward this. But it's like, um, if any, very little. This is very much kind of a, a movie where the white guy, the white straight guy is saved by the magical trans woman who I would debate really doesn't have much of a character, unfortunately. You know, she's there, she suffers, she sees things, she does things. I don't really know who she is at the end of the day. We could also talk about the wife, Joanna Going's character, who's, you know, angry that the main character you know, was a gambling addict and, and all the stuff, but then it turns out that she was, you know, having sex with a friend of his and then she goes through her thing. And it's, I am genuinely not uh, uh, some kind of PC, you know, acolyte, you know, but seeing this movie, is just like, all right, the straight white dude is upset. Why he's upset because he's a gambler and everyone's calling him on it. I mean, he spends the first half of the movie basically whining about, the situation he literally put himself in entirely. And it took, you know, a supernatural trans character to, I don't know, do stuff with the plot that he comes out the other side. I mean, still, even in, in one of the biggest plot points in the movie, he feels entitled to kidnap his own son, terrifying the mother. It's like, dude, what made you think that this is cool? And it's that, it was... Honestly, I, I I don't know how else to say this. It was that kind of like white straight entitlement that ran straight through this movie front to back, which really kind of dulled a lot of the pleasures that the movie has for me and, and certainly the people I was watching it with. I'm a gay guy and I can say this because I see it from a different point of view, but there are tons of people who say all sorts of idiotic shit about all sorts of movies that, in my opinion, as a gay guy is ridiculous so, you know, but it, it's it's tough because, like, you know, do you blame a movie, especially a movie that was made at this point, what, 21 years ago, for not being cognizant of the fact that their main character was basically the recipient of help from these magical trans woman with psychic powers and, you know, the wife who comes back to him, I guess, or, or doesn't at the end but forgives him. I mean, it's all very pat for this guy. Um, and all of his angst and all of his upset, which he got himself into entirely, right, is all forgiven and all good at the end of it. Does he actually question whether he's a good father? I would argue not. 
Like one of the last things that heaven says to him is like, you're a good father. It's like, based on what? The wife says that like he let the kid down like constant times. And if he's a compulsive gambler, then yeah, he probably did. What makes this guy a good father? Like, was there ever a moment where the straight white dude, the main character, actually took a moment and questioned whether or not he actually was a good father or actually did deserve, you know, being left by the wife? I agree with the larger arc of your point, but I I do think that there are a couple of things here in terms of the overall milieu and how how he behaves within it and where he ends up at the end uh, that, you know, somewhat go against this while also fitting the magical trans person, the magical person of color. You know, the, the, the trope there is that they they help somebody figure out their problem. Now, the way in which the, the problem gets figured out, there's a whole issue of money, but let's leave that to the side for the moment, uh, is that ultimately Robert Marling tells his wife that he just wants to see his son and isn't demanding the custody uh, anymore. It doesn't seem to be. And I, I, I read that as um, that sort of thing in the, in the arc of this was a, a bit of a, a, a change, you know, that like what he was asking for was not necessarily like split custody even, but just, you know, simply to see his son. He doesn't get his wife back at the end, which would be a very sort of traditional way of, you know, resolving such problems. But within the realm of noir, we're allowed to have uh, kind of unhappier results uh, for people, in part because uh, everyone involved is so uh, morally compromised, uh, in- well, including his wife. And I do think that this this is a moment of action that raises the question that you're asking from his point of view, which is that, yes, he does steal his own child, but he steals his child from school to then show up and have the conversation with his wife. Now, this is an immense kind of dick move because he should show up alone. He's using his child as uh, a pawn in the conversation that he wants to have with her. Well, also, he did it without contacting the wife. He did it under false pretenses. He scared the shit out of the wife. This goes beyond a dick move. This goes into total fucking entitlement. I well, I I I agree. I agree, but I also I also think that that you know for me that tracks with uh, that tracks with the character, and it's not. It, I'm you know even once he shows up with the kid, it's still morally you go okay. Well, he didn't run away with the kid entirely. He showed up to to meet his wife, but he's still doing this thing that is uh, you know immensely dickish and irresponsible with his kid. But this happens in divorces. And, you know, that's that's one of the things where, you know, the world of noir, I, 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 I prefer stories like that because, you know, in um, in taking us into uh, underbellies and really morally questionable worlds, they allow for the characters uh, to do things that happen normally among people that are really bad and questionable. But that if you put in the uh, in the context of a straight drama might be totally out of the question. Though, obviously, that was the kind of thing that was out of the question for you. You know, it's, a, well, it's, it's like a break with the character. It's not about whether or not this happens in reality. You could, everything happens in reality. You could do anything and it will happen in reality. Someone will have done it, probably in Florida, but otherwise it will have happened somewhere. That's not, that's not an argument. I mean, that's not the argument. I think that basically it's like, we're talking about basically this movie at heart, if we can agree that Robert is the main character, which I think he clearly is, it, this is a redemption story, really. I mean, that's his arc. He t- he starts out being a re- like a nasty, whiny. Oh my God, whiny! 
dude where he's everything's against him and blah 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 and whatever and the wife is a bitch and all this stuff even though she's clearly not um you know real i mean she actually you know she had her very good reasons uh for doing whatever she did um you know but basically like i'm asking when he kidnaps the son does it's not whether or not it's a dick move we all i think in in reality and insanity can agree that's a dick move it's a terribly entitled, horrible, completely inconsiderate, selfish, narcissistic, awful move. Does the movie seem to understand that? I would argue no. The way that it deals with it does not seem to actually understand that that was a horrible thing to do. And we're talking about his redemption. When exactly did he, like, basically the, the issue was, when did he, like, he does redeem himself at the end because he's writing down, he's like, I just want you to be happy and I just want to see my son, which is great, good for you. Um, although that's not terribly far from where he was, you know, he demanded full custody when he thought that he was going to lose full custody. He did that mostly as retaliation, you know, when he had those tapes and that whole thing. Um, but you know, so, okay, so he's back to this place, but it's like, when exactly did he actually start to question his own character? I, I would argue it didn't happen until it was like he was beaten up. And then on the other side, he's just like, I guess he realized that he was a terrible person. I mean, this, these are my issues with the film. I mean, it's like, you know, we could talk about how great the way that it's told was. And I think that's absolutely worthy because it's a very unique way of telling the story. And very few films even attempt anything this audacious. But if you're talking about character, if you're talking about his arc, where's the moment where this straight white guy actually asks himself, wow, am I a bad father? It doesn't happen. That's the problem. And that's, and that and the fact that this trans character has no character. She has nothing to do except suffer, say sage things, save the white dude. At one point she gives him numbers. He's like lotto numbers. We figure out why at the end, spoiler alert, whatever. But it's like, the first thing I said, I literally said this out loud. I'm like, why isn't she playing them herself? Why isn't he asking her? Why isn't she playing them herself? And the reason that he's not asking her why she's playing these numbers is the movie is completely in this mindset that the magical person of color who's trans is going to help the straight white guy. That is literally where this movie lives. And that was my issue. And that's, that is the main problem that I see with this movie. Like, other, other than the fact that, like, our main character doesn't actually deal with the fact that he was terrible. You know that those weren't lottery numbers at the end, right? Yes, 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 I know that. But he actually says, like, these are lottery numbers. He thinks they're lottery numbers. The question I have is, why didn't he ask her, so why are you giving them to me? And the fact that he doesn't, and the fact that we don't think he should, that proves what I'm saying about she is in service to him. Her character. Not not, not the way it is written. I'm not talking about in reality. I'm talking about the way this film is constructed, the plot, this character, this magical trans character, who I'd argue really doesn't have much of a character, is in service to the plot and in service to this main character. And that's an issue. I won't disagree with you on any of that. Well, good. Yeah. I still enjoy this movie, though. Oh, no, I don't. Listen, I don't think that any of the things I'm saying should prevent anyone from enjoying a movie at all. I think there are lots of different ways we can like analyze movies like throughout history, you know, some of which come from a very, I mean, one of my favorite movies is dressed to kill. Now you talk about dressed to kill with any of my trans friends. Oh boy. 
you're going to have an issue. And it's absolutely justified. Like they can talk extra, like, like more so than me, that, you know, very, very eloquently about why Dress to Kill is an extremely problematic movie for trans people. I think you could probably figure it out. Even, even though they put it, De Palma puts it at the end, it's like, oh, he's not really transsexual. It's like, oh, come on. Yeah, okay. Right. Um, you know, they, they talk about Silence of the Lambs, uh, which, which is a little more of an argument, I think, because in the book and in the movie, they go to great lengths saying this is not really transsexual. He's not really transsexual. They say it, I think, a few times, just trying to cover their, you know, rear ends of like, no, transsexuals aren't actually serial killers. Please don't beat anybody up. Please don't take this to heart. But Dress to Kill is a problematic movie. I also think it's one of De Palma's best movies and one of the best thrillers ever. So it's like, and I'll watch it anytime it's on. Like, you know, like you put on that Criterion Blu-ray. My God, I am set for a two hours. That is a great, great movie. But you can't argue some things about it. It's funny that you bring up Silence of the Lambs because I was completely reminded by that movie, which I know came out uh yeah it was before this 92 i think yeah it was when, after, as, yeah it was before heaven yes i'm sorry right when during the end during sean's second kidnapping when <laughs> when <laughs> when and that's the thing about this movie that i like too is that these patterns are repeated that we have this first kidnapping of sean and then we get the second one that stanner does though he is a nice guy at the end which is interesting that uh yeah, absolutely bizarre and completely out of character because he is a complete shitheel, but then he says, no, I'm not that much of a jerk. Well, he doesn't want to kill a kid. I was like, okay, yeah, that makes sense to me. I mean, it's just like, you know, yeah. But when we have that jump in time, when he comes up and bursts open the door and then we cut to inside the apartment and, you know, he's looking in the empty apartment, then we cut again and it's Richard leaving the apartment. I was so reminded of that fake out with Jamie Gump's house, which I always thought was the cheapest thing to do in Silence of the Lambs. If I had one criticism of that movie, it would be that scene where it's actually Clarice ringing the bell and the way that they have the, the delivery man ringing the bell, but it's actually Clarice who is ringing the bell. So... But that's that's the only thing about that movie that I think I dislike. Mike, I love you for saying that because literally I saw it in the movie theater. And when I saw it in the movie theater, when it was released, it was 91, not 92, I think. Um, I like I, the audience groaned because I was just like, oh, Jonathan, Jonathan Demi is like, you cheated. You cheated here. Like you were not cheating. This is a cheat. Well, now it's kind of canon. Like, you can't, you know, it's like one of those movies you can't really criticize because, like, how could you, like, but, but no, I completely agree. That was a, com- but I think in this movie, it actually works. Like, actually better than, better than it did in Silence of the Lambs. When that happened, I was like, oh, okay. I get, okay. I get what's happening. I like that. And I like the shot that follows and precedes it, which is the car, one car coming in, one car leaving, and the way that the cars replace one another is a really nice thing to do as well. And that he leaves the camera running to have the one car leave and the one car come in to show what the chronology was, was a very clever idea. And yeah, like I said, there's a lot of repeating things in here. There's talk about 4 a.m. You know, you have to win this card game by 4 a.m. And then there's another scene where uh, Stanner is talking to these two thugs and saying, you know, people will burn down their club at 4 a.m. And that's ridiculous. So it's nice that we have this repetition. And Stanner, I have to say, one of the most terrifying performances by Richard Schiff of all people my god I'm just always so surprised at how he's like Toby he's Toby from the West Wing I was like how could you be so mean Toby I don't get it and it's like oh yeah he's an actor but he's like 
I, that was so weird seeing him that way. I was such a West Wing fan. And I love his whole monologue that he has about this movie idea that he wants to do called Chamber of the Board. And you think that it's over. And then later on, he's during the card game, the second card game, again, repetition. During the second card game, he's still telling that story about the end of the movie of Chairman of the Board. I'm just like, how long has he been telling this story? <laughs> that is, that's definitely my favorite I guess joke in the movie is the the chairman of the board speech. It's uh, a really really nice bit of film criticism there. Uh, we've I think you know I, I graduated NYU. I've been in in and around independent film basically my entire adult life, and oh my fucking god, this range! I was like, oh my god, this is like exactly the kind of party that I would be like, okay, bye. I'm not gonna listen to this pitch anymore it's terrible i'm leaving this is oh my god oh i haven't i haven't been cornered at a party with someone doing something like that for a while uh but it i was just like i was like having ptsd at that scene well and he's so full of himself because no one no one questions what he does and he gets so angry if anyone steps out of line and he just, he has to be in control. He's such a control freak throughout so much of this. And I noticed the way that Heaven just jumps on Richard when he's looking at the photos in her photo box. And then when Stanner's doing the same thing, she does not say shit. She's in completely abusive relationship with this guy. And I think that might also color some of the weird things that she does in here because she has, she looks up to Stanner to some point that he helped her, took her out of the gutter, but then he treats her like shit. She is completely this weird abuse victim in this relationship. And it's, it's done with only a few uh, details, um, you know, because when, she, when, for instance, she doesn't tell uh, the whole backstory. She tells just the, the outlines of it. And then you see that behavior. It's it's like just these these like little little bits of uh, detail where yeah this guy did a kind a, a kind or kindly thing at one point for her and now is uh, exploiting that which is uh, you know that's a, unfortunately a very common kind of relationship but um, uh, to me was was a a, a, a convincing detail uh, to the way that 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 relationship worked I will confess I'm not I'm not a big fan of Richard Schiff's performance in this, but I have, I have issues with how villains and bullies are played. And, and my big issue with his performance is just that he's, it, it, it becomes too yelly and one note for me after a certain point, And I just want him to go away, but that's me. I, I feel like he works so well as Toby because the, the guy who's basically good, but who is passionate enough to yell makes a lot more sense with his dynamic range than the, the villain who ends up yelling a lot. I, Agree. I don't actually think this was Richard Schiff's issue. I think this was the way he was directed. It just has to be. It's like there's because I've seen enough of his work uh, in and off of the West Wing. That's like, okay, this he was at points where he should have been like at a five. He was cranked up to 11. And it was just kind of like there's there's no reason for these kinds of histrionics. And he's too smart an actor. He He knew better. And I think this was about the way he was directed. I, I placed this solely at Scott Reynolds' feet and not on Richard Schiff's. Hey, well, it's one of those things where you start <laughs> to wonder how or why would anybody be afraid of this person if they're blowing up all the time. The villainous uh, slow burn is is one of those things that, that is, um, you know, genuinely helpful to believing that uh, – 
that uh, when when somebody does blow up, you're going to really be in trouble. And um, he's he's just blowing his top constantly. And I wonder why anybody would stick around or put up with him, you know, long enough to uh, to you know to get ensnared in um, his crimes. What did you guys think of the final act with the whole idea of um, playing that stuff against filters? Hey man, nice shot. We're, let's go back just for a minute to talk about where independent film was at this time, because I think it's a little bit instructive. Um, you know, this was basically after Pulp Fiction and right after Goodwill Hunting, which was basically the one-two punch of Miramax uh, independent film stuff that really changed and one might say, either from one point of view, ruined independent film, from another point of view, kind of developed into something completely different. You know, and, and Pulp Fiction kind of like, you know, it was audacious, it was audience pleasing, it cost like, you know, very little. And it really electrified things and took risks in ways that, you know, bigger budget films didn't. And Goodwill Hunting is basically a lower budgeted film. It was technically independent, it was Miramax, it was, you know, a bigger budget than, you know, Pulp Fiction, certainly. Uh, but it made a tremendous amount of money. And it's, you know, a really good script. I, I would argue it's a really good movie still, although it's, I think it's really cool to dislike that movie these days. But, you know, you're left in after that with a lot of independent films that kind of don't know what exactly they want to do. And this film stylistically was very kind of like you could see David Fincher, you could see David Lynch, you could see Quentin Tarantino, you could see, you know, a lot of different influences um on it and as far as like you know the hey man nice shot it's like okay you're trying to have that moment with a mood with a song like you know like like uh that who was it filter who did that uh, you know as far as i'm concerned it's not ineffective but i'd be lying if i said it didn't kick me out of the movie because it was so very very proud of itself <laughs> and i was watching and i was like Okay. I, you know, and literally I was like watching, I was involved in the movie and then all I could see was a bunch of people at, a, at an avid thinking that they're the hottest shit on the planet for th- for doing this. And it was just kind of like, oh, will you calm the fuck down and tell me a story? And by the way, can you possibly tell me because I might have missed this and please don't hate me if I did. Why do they, why did they just go on a murder spree? Those two? Like, was there an indication of exactly why they d- chose to do that? Well, they saw all that money in Stanner's safe, and I guess they thought they might make more money by robbing him than by participating in his overall scheme, which was to burn the place down and then then give th- those two money. Okay, I'm down with that. I, I get that. It's I think it was just, I guess I didn't make the leap between let's rob that money and let's kill a lot of people for seemingly no reason. I mean, that's, that's a big leap there. I mean, and, and also before we, we stop, we have to talk about the tomato gun shoots, shooting, the, the gun shooting tomato sauce. We have to talk about that. That was such a weird, I have never seen gunshots like that. It wasn't me. I mean, it's, it looked like they were like being shot with like, like, like t-shirt cannons with Contadina tomato paste. I didn't really pick up on that. Like, like when they're shot with the, with the red, I mean, it's like, am I crazy? Like there was some weirdness there, right? I mean, they were being shot with stuff, right? Uh, I don't know. They struck me as, re- as really big, unpleasant squibs. I did really, uh, ad- admire the way that the, the violence was done in this because it wasn't fun. It was just shocking and horrible. 
bulb. I don't know that. Uh, I, I guess I'm, I'm I'm with you that I don't totally see the motivations of those characters. They're pretty small characters, and I I caught that they just wanted to make off uh, with the money. Uh, so the murder spree doesn't exactly uh, you know track, but the the shocking quality of it to me paid off the 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 sort of the fearfulness uh, that that Heaven had earlier. Uh, in talking about what was going to happen and that she doesn't seem to have, you know, all the details of the night um, when she's when she's telling uh, Marling about it earlier in the film uh, or the psychiatrist, but she's extremely disturbed by it. And then I, I found this to be, you know, pretty disturbing. I, I, the, the song actually didn't really register with me. Because the violence for me didn't play in the like fun Tarantino way. I was hearing the song as like background music to the place, and and then there was this violence that I actually was kind of surprised to find rather disturbing. And I, I looked up some some reviews, and um, the Los Angeles Times review uh, by Kevin Thomas when this came out, he he gave in the guidelines at the end uh, for the rating. The film is so savage, you have to wonder what the NC-17 is being reserved for, which I find completely over the top as, um, as an interpretation of this. But on the other hand, I did find it you know, sort of genuinely shocking that, that these, you know, these people just hanging out in, um, uh, in this, this bar are suddenly, uh, and without any warning, uh, you know, getting blown away, and that there hasn't been any of the traditional... Um, uh, kind of suspense build up to that kind of moment. It's just this this like utterly horrible surprise that uh, that, that struck me as you know different in quality. So I don't know. I didn't I didn't even catch the song in that case, and I I was kind of um, impressed that at that time when you know such uh, mob violence in movies was being presented as cool under the the influence of Tarantino that this this was actually just pretty straightforward and nasty and that the dreamlike qualities were reserved for uh, the characters who are in peril, you know, in the different places, uh, heaven in one place, uh, uh, along with Richard Schiff's character, um, Stanner, uh, you know, his, the end that he meets is, is sort of uh, heightened and, and horrific and dreamlike. And then uh, uh, Robert Marlin coming in, uh, sort of paying off those, uh, those crazy light bulbs on the ceiling I love those light bulbs. They were so yeah. The cool. light bulbs were really terrific. So uh, yeah, I don't know. I had I, I feel like I had a pretty different interpretation, and I did I did go to check out the song, uh, but I hadn't I hadn't remembered that. I do remember because I'm this kind of ghoul. A friend of mine had had uh, passed along a VHS tape of the Bud Dwyer thing to me, and I watched it, and it's oh, one of those I really wish I could unsee. But so I ca- I catch the reference in the filter song after the fact. But honestly, it wasn't a song that I remembered particularly well it didn't hit me very hard as as like a as a needle drop and i was uh, at that point i was i was mostly hit with this sense of a uh, horrific violence that uh that i found you know correct and Im- impressive for the story it was it was very disturbing violence i i do want to just make a note that what was the gender of almost everybody that was killed i just want to keep saying this because honestly it's like I think it's important, and, I, and again, I don't want to be the killjoy, I, but I, I think it's important to realize how wrong so much of this movie came from. While we're talking about how good it was, how, while we're talking about how artful it was, I think that the sexual politics in this movie are massively fucked up and really, really, really like kind of what, what I, I hate this term, but it's like unexamined privilege. 
This is a white straight guy who never even thought that any of this stuff was a problem. And I, I would, I would say that to his face. I would say that to him ever. And because this is really just, it emanates from it. Um, but yes, I think that the violence was appropriately gnarly. And as far as the NC 17 rating for Kevin Thomas, I mean, that's, that's an interesting comment. I think there's probably a point to it, but I mean, the, the, the fact that we don't have an NC 17 is more of a tragedy based on blockbuster video. Like you, I've seen a bunch of stuff on social media recently talking about how, like, you know, this, oh, th- this nostalgia for blockbuster video. Blockbuster video basically destroyed the NC 17 rating for one moment. We had the MPAA saying, okay, we're going to give a legitimate rating to movies with adult content, not necessarily pornography, not, you know, but, but adult content that adults could go see in a multiplex like grownups. We do not have to dumb everything down for fucking nine year olds. And then what happened? Fucking blockbuster video and to some extent, a movie I love, Showgirls, killed this rating. In its tracks, like Universal did Henry and June. I don't even remember what else happened. I think Cook Thief happened in for, for two seconds, uh, another Miramax film. Uh, but you started to see movies that were released without ratings. You know, under 18 won't be admitted. I think Time Me Up, Time Me Down got that. Um, and it's now still very, very difficult to see movies that are not rated R in multiplexes. You, you now get, you know, kind of, what, unrated director's cuts on home video and stuff like that? I mean, but the fact that, you know, Stanley Kubrick's final movie was fucking edited by a bunch of fucking douchebags in L.A., it's like, fuck you. Fuck all of you. You don't get to recut Stanley Kubrick, you motherfucking assholes. I mean, I wish we could have an NC-17 rating that was viable, that worked, that multiplexes would show. Um, because I think, you know, in a society, it's, impar- it's important to be able to be adults. That said, I'm glad this movie got an R rating. I'm glad it got released. But, you know, I think this would have been a movie that might have benefited from an NC-17. A real one. Like, like a legitimate rating. I think the Kevin Thomas comment comes more from being, you know, scandalized. His whole review... Uh, even the, the headline, uh, the headline is heaven falls into a den of iniquities and violence. And that's, that's made by the editors, but the, the whole review is really, uh, he, he describes the movie almost as if there's constant violence. And I'm like, Oh, did you watch the same film? Because there's certain, when the violence comes on, it's really unpleasant. Um, but it's not as if every other scene is, uh, is, is some awful, uh, kind of confrontation with, with weapons. Um, so I, I, I think he just felt particularly scandalized and wanted to speak out about that. But I, I'm in total agreement that, uh, you know, an NC-17 rating should be there to protect the rights of adults and also the rights of children not to be const- uh, confronted with certain kinds of uh, I- imagery. You know, it should be protecting both free speech and, uh, you know, the the ability of parents to protect their children. And um, because of uh, Walmart and uh, and and Blockbuster and other commercial forces, we we uh, we end up with a system in which actually kids are much more likely to be able to come across, uh, you know, really uh, intense and inappropriate material. And way more so. I mean, I think that like by, by not allowing, you know, grownups to be able to see grownup stuff, the energy just pushes it all in another direction. It's like, that's what none of these people seem to understand. And, 
you know, even then. But again, we're living in another world now. It's like blockbuster video. It's like, you know, yeah, that, <laughs> people are nostalgic for it. I don't know why. Um, they, they were always terrible and they put all the good video stores, the little local video stores out of business. We all love showgirls. You can't be a film fan and not love showgirls. I, like, please give me an amen, all of you. Amen. I love pretty much everything from Paul Verhoeven. Um, I, uh, even, good man. Even, even, even uh, Ho- Hollow Man is the one where I feel bad, uh, but I will mm. also defend it. I don't mind Hollow Man. I saw it in the theater. I was like, all right. So, David, it must have made you very happy when at the end of the film, Martin Donovan is robbed of his voice because then he can't whine anymore. No. What, is, what kind of bloodthirsty homo do you think I am? Please. I love Martin Donovan. I love him as an actor. I think that, um, you know, and I'm glad that, you know, Heaven ended up with hottie Bones McCoy. You know, that was really cool. But it's I, I appreciated his arc. I appreciated that he wasn't quite as much of a whiny douchebag at the end of the film. But, you know, it's like it, the one thing going back to this, and I don't want to repeat too many times, is like you need a moment where you're like, wow, am I an asshole? Well, let's look at the evidence. I was a gambling addict. I lost all this money for my 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 family. I've let down my son a million times. I've done all this horrible shit. And I call my wife a bitch on the phone and I blow up and I do all this stuff. And then I get beat up. I'm like, oh, maybe I shouldn't be an asshole anymore. Congratulations, straight white guy. You pass. Harvey will buy your movie. All right. We're going to take a break and play a trio of interviews. First, you're going to hear from Heaven herself, Daniel Edwards. Up next, you'll hear from Tree, played by Jeremy Birchall. And last but definitely not least, you'll hear from author Chad Taylor. And we'll be back with all of those right after these brief messages. Do you like horror movies? So do we. Flexible eyeballs yep. out. She was great. Do you like American Horror Story? So do we. There were some butts. Yep, pillins. Yep, butt. Yep, pillins. Butt. Yep, pillins. It's over 90% cheek. That's your butt. You see the essence of the butt. Are you into vampires dancing in mesh tank tops? Us too. I was mesmerized by the mesh tank top and leather pants. Are you into high-minded film critique and discussion? Because we've got that. And it is beautifully filmed. Like, it really... Just the stark contrast of colors, like you said. Not your thing? How about a dick joke? His dick, dude. He put his yeah. dick in a fucking pig. Come on. We've also got one dude to give dude perspective. Zombie apocalypse is no time to have your head in the pussy clouds, Mickey. This is survival. <laughs> Thank you. So head over to iTunes or Stitcher, wherever you listen, and subscribe to The Bloodlust, your go-to podcast for a classy broads and a token dude talking horror. like great music do you like in-depth podcasts do you like the idea of putting great music under the microscope if you answered yes no or fish to any of these questions love that album is the show for you every month morris and a fellow music fanatic discuss a particular album in detail. They'll cover the performer, the history behind the recording, the musicianship, common thematic elements between the songs, and how many drugs were consumed during its creation. Well, maybe not so much of the last bit. So if you want to hear a podcast bringing perspective to great rock, jazz, folk, punk, and sea shanty music, then subscribe to 
Love That Album podcast at Apple Podcasts or download directly from lovethatalbum.blogspot.com. It is interview time on this episode, and first up, you're going to hear from Heaven herself, Daniel Edwards. How did you get involved in show business? Many, many years ago, I started when I was seven. It's my 50th birthday this year, so I've been in industry 43 years, which actually makes me a real kind of seasoned pro. I started doing commercials and, you know, the usual standard fare. Um, I went to kind of, you know, theatre clubs in the evening. And then I went to the National Youth Theatre, which is a, a very sort of famous um, youth theatre here in the UK that kind of um, springboards a lot of young talent, a lot of young, a lot of actors, older actors as well. It's been going for a long time started there and they start with a summer course when you're sort of in your kind of you know between the age of about 13 and 15 and you do like a two-week intensive course and then you remain in the company and you then go on to do plays in the West End you know with the youth theatre and so I, I was accepted at the National Youth Theatre when I was 14 and then I started working professionally at 17 I got my equity card as it was then you know it's, you know equity doesn't have as much a of a whole, what it does, but it's, it's a different process now. I know it's similar in America. So I got a, um, I went and did two seasons at a, at a regional theatre in um, Coventry when I was 17, got my adult equity card, and I worked consistently from, you know, as an adult from 17 until I gave up in my mid-30s. So that's how I started. So I've been doing it a very, very, very long time. And now I'm in casting, been in casting for... 12 years now. Tell me about some of your early roles. What kind of things uh, were you working? I know you said commercials, but but were you doing a lot of stage work with that as well? So my first professional stage role was there was um, a a, a very famous sort of touring Shakespeare company called the Vanessa Ford Company. And they would do like a bit like, you know, repertory theatre. They they would do all of the Shakespeare, all the kind of the classics um, in rotation. And they would be in all the regional theatres around the UK. And my first role aged 13 was Curio in Twelfth Night. It was one of the page boys. And, um, oh God, I can't remember the name of the... Um, and then I did played another page. I played Paris's page in uh, Romeo and Juliet. So I was, uh, so you're, you know, you're, you're a professional child actor, but you're working with these incredible, you know, adult actors. So that was my, and I did that for the Beck Theatre in Hayes, which is kind of quite prolific. Well, I say prolific, regional theatre here just outside London. So Shakespeare, and then when I went to Coventry to do the rep season, I did Guys and Dolls, played one of the, the you know, I was one of the youngest crapshooters in, in the musical Guys and Dolls, and then I did a play called Foxy, which was about aliens. I did um, a play called All the Way Home, um, this is all in the mid mid to late 80s. Um, so I was playing, I've had different manifestations as an actor, different sort of evolve. I evolved as, as everybody does in any job they do. And I look back at how this sounds really conceited, and I really don't mean it to sound like it possibly going to sound, but 
I look back then and I realize how accomplished I was in terms of my, I suppose, my range and my ability when I was young because I had no fear. I think the fear came later. And I think you usually find with a lot of actors that when you're younger, it's like now when I cast kind of teenagers or, 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 or kids, before the sort of the, the worries and, you know, you, you use all your instincts. So a lot of the roles I played were sort of quite interesting and sort of ahead of my years because I had the bravery to just throw myself into it. And I was a very instinctive actor. I was always able to just look at a script and, and understand what was needed. So I played a real variety. And then I did things like pantomime. We have, you know, have you heard of, I'm sure you've heard of British pantomimes. You know what that is. So we obviously we have that here. And then, so I trained in dance as well all the way through my childhood. So I would be doing, you know, Romeo and Juliet and Twelfth Night, and then I would be in panto, so and doing kind of musical styled uh, shows. So it was a real smorgasbord of interesting work and eclectic work that made me as an actor sort of. I had an interesting early career, and I sort of I think that carried on through my career. I, you know, with Heaven, the classic example. That's not your standard role for an actor. So I feel very proud of that. I look back now, now that I'm so distant from performing uh, as, as an actor, and I'm really proud of the variety of roles that I played. And of course, then you hit your 20s and, and you know, the realization of how the industry works and all that fear comes in and your instinct, you struggle a lot, you know, much harder to find your instinct and not listen to your voice sort of questioning, am I good? Oh my God, I'm not, I'm terrible, I'm rubbish, you know, all those things that kind of afflict most actors. So yes, yeah, so, but it's interesting, I didn't actually do screen, apart from commercials as a, as a kid, I didn't do screen, didn't hit the, hit the ground running with screen until, until my mid-twenties, which is one of the hardest things for actors, I think, in America as well, that you desperately want, you know, most actors are training in the UK, is very focused on theatre, Yet the majority of auditions and roles that most actors will play in this country will be for screen. And obviously your country has screen is, is its core. You know, obviously New York has a, a wonderful theatre scene, but, but across America and in particular, um, the West Coast, it's, it's geared for screen acting. Can you tell me about one of your earliest roles, which was Killer Tongue? Basically, I want to give you a bit of back history. When I was in my early 20s advert came up in the stage newspaper which is a newspaper that feels a little bit obsolete now because everything is digital but it was a newspaper back in the day before the internet where there would be adverts the last kind of five six big pages would be for adverts i don't know what your equivalent is in the states where actors would get it every week and there'll be auditions and they were looking for drag artists in uh, to work at a very famous venue called Madden Jojo's where Princess Diana used to go and Liza Minnelli used to go. It was a, an incredible, very kind of 1930s style live drag cabaret with, you know, full kind of live singing and big feathers and, and a proper full show with 12 people on the stage. And I'd never, ever, ever done drag before and never, ever thought about doing it. But I literally, rather than working as a waiter, which I was very bored of doing when I wasn't acting, it was paid really well. I never danced in a pair of heels or put makeup on. And so in a nutshell, I auditioned for Madden Jojo's um, 
and I got the lead sort of cabaret performer and I was thrown into a world of drag cabaret, which was brilliant for me because I could act, do my act thing and do my jobs and then have this evening show, evening job which paid the rent and from the back of that opened up a whole world which you know snowballed to heaven uh, where I got quite prolific in terms of I wouldn't say to RuPaul's level but that whole drag scene when RuPaul first sort of came to because of international acclaim in the, the sort of early 90s I was sort of part of that cabaret performance art circuit and the killer tongue was a i don't know if you've, if you've ever seen it it's been a long time but um yeah i'm a fan of melinda yeah. clark so i checked that out yeah melinda clark oh i loved i loved her she was just so wonderful um and robert england and doug bradley and um so i auditioned for that and and what was great is that i then had a period of of, of my career where my sort of knowledge and understanding and ability to do drag filtered into my acting work and obviously i got a, a playing loca with john a very young jonathan reese myers who was 17 at the time and we were if you if you remember it's a very obscure spanish film where we were poodles owned by melinda clark and then she swallows um and then we turn into sort of fetishistic weird sort of drag personas um and we spent two months in the desert at almeria in spain Spain, in in leather outfits and um i'd love to say it it was a a fantastic experience if i'm honest mike it was brilliant and if i look back now i can laugh and and look fondly at it it was a hard experience but it it sort of I had an incredible time. We had, we had a lot of time to kill. And what's interesting about back then in the early 90s is that, well, mid-90s, that would have been then, um, you know, just before the sort of the internet sort of kicked in and before we had, um, you know, iPads and, and computers where every day, you know, if you were on a film set and you had all that time to kill, you had nothing to keep you occupied apart from a Walkman and a book. And what's so interesting now, looking at actors who, you know, you, you, you can take your iPad and your, you can download 20 films and you, it's very hard to keep sane on a film set when you have absolutely nothing to do in those down periods. And when you're doing a film like that, which was so bonkers and so bizarre and avant-garde and, and, you know, when you're dressed head to toe in restrictive corsetry um in the middle of a desert in heat that was unbearable it was sort of a a bit of a paradox of being the most exhilarating and and bizarre experience to actually being really quite tedious and uncomfortable so i look back fondly now but at a distance but then i met jonathan and and worked with mindy clark and, and people like that and and, you know, and obviously Robert Englund, who I was a huge, huge fan, being a massive fan of the Nightmare films. So, yeah, so that that was my experience of The Killer Tongue. I haven't been able to track this down, but you were also in a, um, was it a series called Gold? I was. Um, so um, it's really bizarre you should bring that up because I was, I, I was literally just talking about that a couple of 
couple of hours ago. So there's a, ma- a huge series in the it, it, it springboarded Samantha Morton. So it was a series called Bands of Bands of Gold, about uh, written by a very famous writer here called Kay Meller. And it was groundbreaking in its time um, about uh, prostitutes in Leeds in the, in the north of England and following um, four of them as they went through their lives. And it was incredibly, it was one of the first shows that had female protagonists that were effectively socially a social negative, but yet were a positive in terms of your audience, you know, sort of warming to them and, and seeing it from their side. Also, Lena Headey was in, was springboarded Lena Headey as well. Um, it was a hugely popular show, um, very gritty, very real, very stark and brutal with a lot of humour, but with the darkness of it all, as you can imagine, with its subject matter. And it, um, so it ran for three series, the first two series, very successful. And then the third series, one of its leads, Barbara Dixon, the, the singer, left the series. And it, uh, so it was pared down. Samantha Morton's character had left the series and Lena Headey's character, because obviously they went off to be big, big stars. And then the third series was, uh, um, was called Gold, about following the two of those prostitutes as they began to try and create a non working girl life outside of prostitution and I had the absolute privilege to play opposite Mark Strong and it was our storyline yeah it was pretty and that was actually after heaven it was literally the job I did after heaven when I came back to the UK so it was one of Mark's Mark had it was like the new he'd just come out of drama school maybe a couple of years and he was you know, being ta- as you know, he is a great actor, and it was me and him, and it was our storyline. He he was a character, that, and again, I was playing a transgender. Uh, I was playing a transgender character. Um, interestingly, you know, with Heaven and and Gold way ahead of its time in terms of we look at transgender, the transgender discussion within film and television and and politics now. It's very much on the forefront, but back then, 20 years ago, it, apart from drag, as we've been discussing, it wasn't in mainstream television, apart from the crying game, of course, had sort of brought that to people's attention. So it was me and Mark. It was an incredible series to be a part of. So interestingly, it wasn't dissimilar to heaven. I mean, there were a lot of, obviously, a lot of things that were very, very different, you know, the storylines, but my character wasn't dissimilar. This was somebody, a transgender character who was somebody that uh, was the protagonist that the audience could warm to, that would follow, that would sort of love and feel for. Interestingly, I literally shot them back to back, and I remember Sue Rogers, the producer, because obviously, Gold came out in the UK and it's also, it was syndicated around the world. And obviously it was shown in New Zealand before Heaven had come out. And I do remember at the time having a conversation with Sue Rogers on the phone, the producer, who said it's, it's sort of, it's brilliant that you've done this, but it's sort of a real shame because the world hasn't met Heaven yet. Um, so that was interesting. But what that did, Mike, was sort of made me realize that I was the go-to actor to play transgender roles and as proud as I am in particular now looking back 
very proud of that fact because they were really, as an actor, really brilliant roles to play. But I was thinking, I'm getting typecast. Because of my sort of profile as a, as a cabaret performer in the evening and stuff, it was all beginning to merge. So, yes, yeah, so Gold was part of Bands of Gold, which was, a, you know, and that, that was done. So that was 97. Uh, I think we shot Heaven in, in the beginning of the year in 97, and I came back and I think I started shooting in Manchester in the sort of the autumn of 97. Well, how did you come to Heaven? I was doing a play in Manchester and I had just done a TV documentary Uh, uh, we had a spate in the mid 90s of documentaries that would follow uh, we had one about uh, you know uh, Heathrow Airport one about and we won the first documentaries that, that was called Soho Stories and it followed the lives of people who lived and worked in Soho and I lived Oh, I don't know if you've been to London, but I lived in lived on Wardour Street, which is right in the middle of Soho. It's a huge street that goes from Chinatown to Oxford Street. And it's a very, very famous street. And it's got a lot of film companies on it. And I lived there for 12 years. I was very lucky and privileged to live, you know, right in the middle. And um, I was doing my cabaret in the evening. And uh, the documentary film crew from the BBC came and saw me sing and then asked if I w- if they could follow me for a year. And they did, uh, f- amongst other people that lived and worked in Soho. And it was a very, very successful series. Anyway, there was a casting director called Dan Hubbard, who is uh, him and his, he's, it's a family business. So there's John and Ros Hubbard who cast Lord of the Rings and uh, The Hobbit and very prolific casting directors. And they have their son, Dan, and their daughter, Amy, who I know very well now as, you know, fellow casting directors. And Dan and John Hubbard were auditioning for this film called Heaven that was going to be shot in New Zealand. And I was in this play up in Manchester and my agent, and at the time, this was show you how long ago it was, I didn't even have a mobile phone. I had a pager and I kept getting messages from my on my pager saying, call your agent, please call me, please call me. And then I would get other messages from, this is Dan Hubbard, casting director, can you call this number? And it was just very bizarre, and I was all the way up in the north of England, and I was out, my agent called, got hold of me, I called my agent, and they said, listen, they're auditioning every mixed-race actor that could potentially play this wonderful character in this film. Can you get back down? And obviously I was... I was in rehearsals at the time, so I couldn't leave to come down for an audition in the day in, uh, during the week. But John Hubbard and Scott, um, Scott Reynolds, the director, uh, they postponed the audition so that I could be seen on a Saturday because Dan Hubbard had seen an article in a magazine about me uh, showing... Soho Stories was about to air and the the title underneath a photograph of me looking like a girl saying uh, Danny Edwards actor uh, this is his you know look out for Soho Stories this is you know follows actor Danny Edwards round cabaret singer in the evening actor in the day and obviously Dan Hubbard was like this is just brilliant because we're auditioning all of these actors some many of them had never ever been made up to look like a woman and here was an actor an experienced actor who when all the makeup goes on looked 
like a girl or looked as feminine as possible. And it's just a series of wonderful coincidences, my to be quite honest, that, that I was that they held off seeing me till the Saturday. I came down from Manchester late that night on the night before and I spent an hour and a half with Scott Reynolds and John Hubbard in John's old office on Compton Street in Soho. And it was the most exhilarating audition I've ever had. It sort of puts everything in place for my experience on that film. And me and Scott hit it off straight away. And I'd learned all my lines. And I wanted this so badly. I didn't think I'd get it. But I thought, I'm going to just give everything I've got for it. And I understood who this character was. I mean, I didn't have telekinesis, but I understood the, the world. Obviously, they'd sent the script and I'd read the script and I just fell in love with it. And I knew who this, this, who she was, the, the, the heart that she had and the love, her being in love with, with Robert Marling and, and then the Stanner character and, and just sort of, it seemed, I knew it was my role. And even if I didn't get it, I knew it was still my role. And I remember thinking, is there anybody in the UK that can play this part other than me? No, there isn't. I just knew in my heart. And I know that they'd seen people in Australia, they'd seen people in New Zealand, they'd seen people in America. And I just gave everything I had to that audition. I was off book, word perfect. They put it on camera. I, we talked about my cabaret career. We talked about... You know, me and Scott sort of delved through the script and we just reworked some of the scenes and tried things in a different way. And we just really just collaborated. And then I went back up to Manchester and carried on in rehearsals in the play. And then the play opened and I got called from my agent. Well, I got on the page, please call your agent. Bearing in mind, Mike, that I'd just opened in this play and I had like five more weeks of a run. And this was, it was playing over the Christmas period. So that would have been... 96 Christmas 96 I think and the part they wanted me to play the role but they wanted me to be in New Zealand on New Year's Day bearing in mind the play didn't finish until the end of January and I've never felt such fear and and my heart just sinking my agent was brilliant my agent at the time was like we will find a way to make this work but it was all down to the theatre you know, would they release me? And what happened was a series of events. The theatre were very, very accommodating. And so were the production team on Heaven, Sue Rogers, who's remained a friend, the producer. They agreed to incorporate, the the theatre said that I would have to buy myself out of my contract so that they could then rehearse a new actor in. The Heaven production team were amazing and they incorporated in my deal with my agent the money that I was earning would cover the money that that it would cost me to buy myself out. I was, I mean, can you imagine that there was a couple of days, about a week actually, where I thought I wasn't going to be able to do it. And you know, when, you know, going back to what I was saying about, you know, this was my part and the thought, you know, going to New Zealand uh, for three months and all of that, seeing that slipping away and just this sort of the stress on a young actor. Um, but it all worked out. And then I literally on day before New Year's Eve, or I can't, yeah, I can't remember. I arrived, I think on New Year's Day or the day after New Year's Day. 
And there I was. Suddenly, it was, you know, signing contracts before I went. It came through on fax. And I remember being in my agent's office on a Sunday and this contract coming through, which was like 80 pages coming through on a fax machine. They just took like an hour to come through. But all of it was just exhilarating. The relief that I was able to buy myself out of my contract, I helped rehearse the other actor in to the role that I was playing. Um, and I've never to this day, you know, even with the wonderful roles I played after and the heaven was, uh, sorry, the bands of gold was similar to, you know, every job you get is, is, is exciting, but this was different. The script for heaven is, is beautiful. Scott's re slight reworking of the original novel. The fact I was going to New Zealand, a place I'd never been, I've always wanted to go, you know, I was playing this role, you know, the title role. Um, and by then I didn't, I think when I was offered the role, I didn't know that Martin Donovan and Richard Schiff and Joanna Going and Patrick Malahide and Carla Barn, who obviously wasn't famous then, but there's the excitement of it, but it all worked out. And then I was on a plane traveling business class, just thinking, this is just too, this is, this is what I've, since I was seven years old, this is everything I've ever wanted. Um, and I think most actors you'll find, and probably you know, the many that you've interviewed, there's always one job that, whether they're in the industry still or not, that they that stays with their heart and stays with them for lots of different reasons because it was creatively exhilarating, or it changed them as a person, or where they were shooting, or the friends they made on it, or whatever. Whatever the reasons, there'll always be that one job that that stays with you for the rest of time. Um, so it's a joy to talk to you about it. So that's how it all came about, and that there where I was on the plane flying to New Zealand. As an actor, what's your process when you come to play a role and to kind of discover how you're going to play a role? Do you do like writing a backstory, or how do you just kind of move into it? It's interesting not now acting and looking back, but now obviously working with actors and casting actors and watching their process in the casting room and working out what their process is and what they need to get to that level. For me, as I said before, for many, many years, it was always instinct. I remember a friend of mine who's still a very good friend. We did a play, we did Angels in America at the Crucible Theatre in, in Sheffield. And I, I struggled to remember lines. I still struggle to remember things. Sometimes my short-term memory is pretty ropey, but my long-term memory is crystal clear. So I would always panic when there would be a huge amount of dialogue. I'd have to really, really think. So I used my instincts. So sometimes... I wouldn't overthink the part. I would. I'm, I wasn't that kind of actor. If I understood it, then I would allow my sort of gut instinct uh, to come into to play. And sometimes that would work to my detriment because then I wouldn't, you know, maybe learn my lines in a more sort of strict fashion. And I can't. You can't just wing it on the day. I used a lot of instinct, and I think if a casting director has done their job properly and the director has cast the right actor, there will be something about that actor that is akin to that role. So really, you will have an understanding of who that person is. Whether you've got the same life experience as that character, it's not even that. It's an emotional core of your in, your in your being that, that resonates and that's what makes an actor brilliant in the casting room because they get who that person is so I would always use my instinct and then I would 
I do, and I still do this now in casting, I do mood boards. So I do, I sort of go through magazines, I go through old TV shows and stuff, and not copying, but getting inspiration as to images of who that person is. Colours, music, um, sounds, smells. I would always have a different, I know some, a lot of actors do this, I would always buy an aftershave or a perfume or whatever, a smell that that was akin to I felt that that character would wear so that I would have that smell in my nostrils when I was playing that role so that it would envelop me. Some things that are more complex, for example, like Angels in America, you know, you need to do the political research for a play that beautifully dense and and intellectual. Um, And I think you can't get away with just your instinct. So it would always depend on the role. And how much work I knew, like with Bands of Gold, you know, understanding and learning about prostitution and understanding the laws of the prostitution in this country and, you know, working class women on the streets and, and things like that. Obviously, the drag element of it, the transgender element, although obviously not transgender myself, but being singing in cabaret venues and drag venues in the evening, being in that world that was sort of second nature to me so with heaven approaching heaven there were elements that I didn't have to worry about there were elements that I knew to find the femininity of that character but it was about the psych uh, the telekinesis that she had the the sort of I mean I think we all as human beings always wish that we had a, a special ability and I think in this day and age of Marvel films we're, and X-Men we're always thinking what would your special power be and mine was always being able to read people's minds and having you know flash forwards and flashbacks of you know of, of knowing what was going to happen so I would read for, for that character I read a lot about that and and people feeling they had that ability and gift and being alienated from from society because of that gift so it it would in a long winded answer to your question it, it it was always depend on the role sometimes just using pure instinct and sometimes adding that with imagery and different senses for that character to sort of give it some weight and give it some history so many actors that I talk to will talk about props or costumes. And, you know, I think of the scene in Wings of Desire where Peter Falk is looking for a hat and he wants the perfect hat to embody the character. And you get to have this whole other wardrobe that you are in to really, I would think, help put you in a completely different headspace than you normally are in on a day to day basis. And interestingly, what they did brilliantly the production company on heaven is they flew me out i think it was about a week before shooting a week to 10 days before shooting because the character had to there's so much stuff i mean a lot of stuff for example uh uh, the costume department um and uh they they sent money ahead so that i could bring i had shoes made in the uk and I, I brought them over here so that they had more choice because they could only have a certain amount of shoemakers that they could find in New Zealand to make that size, size 12 feet. So th- I had an incredible collaborative week prior to shooting where I was in costume. I would spend time with the costume, um, the costume um, designer. I spent a lot of time with Dominique Till, the, the makeup artist. We've, we've remained friends. I would spend time at her house. 
so that we practice different things with the makeup, with different wigs, with different uh, pluckings of the eyebrows and different makeup shades. And um, I can't remember the name of the costume designer, which is terrible of me, but um, I spend a lot of time with those two women to create the character of heaven on a visual level. And although, yes, I had, you know, worn women's clothing for, you know, cabaret, this was, they were so clever. They needed her, the character, because, you know, she worked for Stanna. She was sort of, you know, in, in this nightclub world, but also you know, all the different elements of that character. Um, and creating, they wanted me to, wanted me to create that image with them in mind. And then we would talk a lot with Scott and we tried different things on. And, and a lot of stuff was made from scratch. A lot of stuff was made uh, for me. And Scott would come in, sit in with makeup on the makeup truck while we did makeup tests and costume tests. And and this character slowly, this who was so, yes, elements of my personality, but very, very, you know, I'm much, much more gregarious and out there and slightly vulgar in my language. And, and heaven wasn't like that. Heaven was sort of peaceful and kind and fragile and so not like me and so to create this world that this character was in on the visual yeah in answer to your question it was yeah you're absolutely right it's sort of adding this different than your normal standard yeah i need a hat i need a glove or an overcoat the standard you know dressing for your sex but dressing for a different gender was so exciting and it meant that that f- the first day of shooting was when when heaven walked on to the set for the very very first time i'll never ever forget that day and just the whole crew clapping because this character that they'd all built and they'd just all seen me in the production office and you know meeting everybody and we all went for drinks and dinner and richard schiff took us out for dinner and you know all these things happened in the lead up but no one had seen me apart from the makeup costume and Scott and the producer Sue. No one had seen her come together. Coming out after three hours in makeup for the first time was fantastic. And I did feel like a different person. I didn't ever feel like Danny Edwards when I was dressed and everything was put on and, and everything was created. And obviously when it, when it was all taken off at the end of the day, I felt like, like Daniel again which was good because I needed to leave the character on that set because of everything that happens in that film. There were some, as you know, there's some dark moments. I felt it really important. And also I was playing opposite these, you know, Martin, you know, I was so nervous around Martin. Richard, I hadn't known really before. I'd seen him in loads of stuff, but I, he wasn't Richard Schiff as he is now. Back then, you know, he'd just done the, Jurassic Park 2, he was, he just literally come from filming that straight on to heaven. So he wasn't, you know, the, the West Wing didn't exist. So it's it sort of, I wasn't in fear of him, but I'd seen Martin's films and, and I didn't know Joanna going either. And I, you know, and Carla Barn wasn't a household name. Apache Malahide, however, was in Britain, very famous actor here. So I was intimidated by him and Martin. <laughs> I needn't have been, in particular with Patrick, who really took me under his wing. So yeah, I needed to leave it behind when when we when we we finished because I was I was in every you know I'm in more or less every scene and I was on set nearly every day. I think I probably had very very few days off, 
Um, and you know, when you're going into makeup three hours before everybody else, when you're still in the makeup truck when everyone's gone, it's hard. And in the heat of the, the, the New Zealand summer, and it was hard when you're doing all of those really dark scenes, but amazing. It almost sounds like you're a little isolated in that role. Yes, I was. And I think that was important. I think it needed, whether that was done, uh, in a contrived way, probably psychologically, probably yes. I don't think any, I, I did feel alienated. And, and also I think what happened when after a while, because any shoot, every single shoot, whether it be film and television, especially, uh, what, what would have been a low, considered a low budget at the time, um, the stress levels for people is, you know, you have such limited time because you don't have the funds to, you know, I mean, it's, it's hard now because it's obviously a Miramax movie, but, <clears throat> and obviously that's something, something that is very contentious now. But at the time, you know, you have to just get on with it. And I did begin to get stressed and very homesick at some point when you're having, when the expectations and then what happens, Mike, is that you, with every actor, the, the, the doubt creeps in. And you, because you, because you have, you know, unlike theatre, it's not shot in order. And so you're, you lose track of where you are and you then start to question yourself and you, you know, you would maybe do a couple of really rubbish takes and, and you think, oh, was that good? And then you are playing opposite Martin Donovan, who's like in the zone and, and really sort of, you know, is the master of the low budget film and, and, and finding a sort of effortless screen actor and, you start to get paranoid that you're rubbish and, you know, and, and, and also that you're, you know, when, when it's a lunch break, I remember once we were shooting, there's a scene, which I don't think they use. There's a scene between me and Martin where, where, where I take him out for breakfast and it was shot in a beautiful old, um, Auckland, uh, railway station, which I don't think was functioning at the time. And, um, it's a beautiful kind of Victorian, uh, building and you can sort of see its depth from the view of the camera when on, on the two shot of me and Martin. And, um, that was a long three days and there were so many extras, essays, should I say now? And, um, and I was dressed as a girl or, you know, I'm dressed as a girl all the time. So you're in really like big locations and in Auckland. And, and of course the stress of that is, can be quite hard because then there are people of the general public, you know, and you've got this six foot two, clearly, you know, either a transgender person or, you know, a drag queen or what, you know, who is that girl or a boy you're dealing with that element of it as well. And you can't just, I couldn't just in my, trailer i couldn't i had to be careful if i was like not filming for three or four hours i couldn't just go to sleep face down on my little bed because of my makeup and you know the hair has been pinned into my own hair i had quite long hair at the time but it uh, Dominique used sort of hair pieces to make it look like natural hair so all of the hairline is my own hair back to about two or three inches and then it all becomes a piece um and so i couldn't when you you know, I couldn't, I was never comfortable. And, you know, they were sometimes really worried about taking the hair out because I wasn't going to be shooting for maybe six hours and I'd have a six hour wait. And sometimes that's really uncomfortable because you just can't splash cold water on your face, you know, and have that reapplied in 10 minutes. <clears throat> you do become quite 
stressed. And I remember that particular three days, this beautiful venue and this beautiful location. And But I felt very uncomfortable. And I began at that point of shooting to question myself as to whether or not I was any good, which is never, never good when you start to listen to your own inner dialogue, sort of questioning your ability as an actor. How was Scott Reynolds to work with as a director? Intense, brilliant. We had many clashes, which, you know, even saying from public popular podcast, I'm sure he'd agree, and, but that's exactly how it should be. He tested me and pushed me to the limit and got my best work out of me. Sometimes I didn't want to be tested, you know, because when you're knackered and tired and he's such a clever writer and a clever director. I mean, that was... The, the, the timeline of that film, I think, is so brilliant to shoot it in that way so that nothing is revealed and nothing see, is what it seems and the flashback and the flash forward and it all beautifully coming together at the end and you going, oh, that's what that meant. And that, you know, that's good storytelling. That's good filmmaking. And he knew his vision. He knew what he wanted. He, um, you know, we, we sort of were similar ages, which was only a couple of years older than me. So we're both in our sort of, I think I was 27 then. Um, we're the same age and we did clash. We did clash and I threw a tantrum and he threw a tantrum and but it all became part of my relationship with him. And Scott used to call, I don't know how many directors do this actually. He's the only director that I've worked with that did it. He would call you by your character name, not your real name. I, Remember at the time when he said that's what he was going to do, I thought, oh, that's really pretentious. But actually, it was brilliant. It was absolutely brilliant. It's sort of because you you are that person at the time that you're shooting. You, you, yes, you want to leave heaven behind, you know, when you finish shooting. But, you know, he would he would call me that on set from the morning until the end. Um, heaven, come here. Let me have a chat with you. So that you sort of remain in character. Um so we had a lot of different ways of working and, you know, I, I look back with real fond memories of him and what he got out of me. And also I, I will never forget that first audition with him in, in London. And, and also me and Scott laughed a lot because we both had a very sort of silly, vulgar sense of humor and, and, you know, those moments and also the stress of a young director, but he was, brilliant to work with and, and even more so when I look back at that film and his previous work that I'd seen a couple of things that he'd done a short and another film that's name's just gone out of my head he was fantastic and I'm very proud of the tempestuous and brilliant and fun working relationship that we had well what did heaven do for you professionally I mean it got me bands of gold uh, got me the bands of gold gig um, because because I just played a similar character when I came back, because it was going to be playing opposite Mark Strong, I remember when I had I had like three recalls for for that, and I was um, interestingly back then. Of course, casting directors rarely put you on tape, which is now standard. You know, you every audition, and that's why you don't have to do as many auditions because you've got the actor on tape. So actually, you know, all the networks and the execs can look at that tape and whereas back then I don't remember in those early to mid 90s ever being put on tape for 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 screen uh, they did for film but not for television and or, or rarely and so I had like three meetings three auditions one with the cast and director then the cast and director and the producer and then the cast and director the producer and the exec 
and were in two minds between three actors to play and they wanted to get it right because it was going to be opposite Mark Strong and it was the storyline was centered around those two characters. And because I'd just come back off the back of a Miramax movie, opposite, you know, Patrick Malahide, Martin Donovan, Richard Chiff, Joanna Going, they were like, it was a no-brainer to them that I could carry carry a series or carry a segment of a series. Um, I think had heaven not happened, then I think they would have been more cautious. Um, and I probably wouldn't have got it. I think that it's, it, my career in, on screen snowballed not to any dizzying heights because I, obviously the roles I've played, Killer Tongue, Heaven, Bands of Gold, all the other roles I've played on British television have either been very obscure or slightly, you know, I've, I've rarely played sort of generic. Um, I've always played sort of interesting roles. Um, but I just did a lot of television and a lot of sort of, you know, a lot of television and a bit more theatre. And um, and then I made the decision not to ever play a, a transgender character again because I felt that I'd played, I'd, I'd played it. But because the film itself didn't get, and it's, it's interesting because I saw Sue Rogers, the producer, she came over to London um, just before Christmas and we went out for a tea and we really caught up and... It was lovely to see her, and we talked about the whole, the whole, our whole time on Heaven, and and you know we were all very gutted that it didn't get the the audience that perhaps it should have had. But I do remember, I think Columbine, I think it was one of your mass shootings had just happened on our release weekend, um, and I think the violence in Heaven. I mean, I think the violence in Heaven is is shocking, and sort of ahead of it, you know, um, you know, the Quentin Tarantino was doing it, but he's, I think there's a gloss to Tarantino's movies, which sort of, uh, soften it for the, uh, for the audience, either with the use of music and sound and what he does, or apart from, you know, um, Oh Lord, what's it called with Mr. White? Mr. Oh, um, Reservoir Dogs. Yes. Reservoir Dogs, which is brutal violence. I think it feels, I think the, he- the violence in heaven feels very Reservoir Dogs than it does in Tarantino's later movies. Um, and I think it was just too much. All the shooting with, with the two characters going on the shooting rampage, it was too much. But interestingly, with the DVD release, and it's become a, a, a cult, a bit of a cult film. And also what's so lovely, Mike, is it's been on Channel 4 here twice in, in the UK on television. And it's been lovely when it's been on because I've, I get phone calls or messages from people who didn't, had never seen the film, didn't know I'd done it, and and go, oh, I've just turned the television on, and there's this film that you're in, and and so in terms of my career, what I think it did, it gave me a good two, three, four years, five years, say afterwards, of a really good run, when I then started to become a little bit disillusioned about whether or not I actually wanted to be an actor, and you know I found my vocation now, but what it has done for me is given me my proudest moment as an actor it's i've still got friends on it that you know especially now with social media are able to keep in touch with um i feel incredibly proud of my involvement in it i feel very very proud of the film um my time in new zealand you know i to this day if i won the lottery tomorrow i would probably retire and move to new zealand that's my dream because i think it's one of the most beautiful countries if not the most beautiful country in the world and it changed me as an actor. It changed me with my confidence. It changed my understanding of what film could be. And 
the understanding of low budget filmmaking and the restrictions and the process. Um, so it gave me a lot more personal kudos than it did professional. But I don't, I think sometimes that, that is how it should be. And listen, you know, 2018, I'm talking to you in America on your wonderful podcast about a film that you've seen and my experience on it 20 years later. So, you know, it, that's a wonderful thing. I, I love that, that it's, it's there forevermore and it's an interest. And also, you know, it springboarded Carla Barn, you know, and it really did. And, and, you know, well, no, actually Lord of the Rings springboarded him, but it was a, you know, watching Carl on his progression, it was just, it was, he was just on the cusp of there being a bit of a buzz about him. And I feel so privileged, you know, my relationship with him in, in, in the film. And he was amazing because he, he would take, take me out on weekends and we'd go to Curry Curry where the piano was filmed and he, he would go surfing and I'd sit on the beach and he, you know, he, he, he sort of was my, my New Zealand buddy and I'm so proud of him. And up until probably oh, 10, no longer, probably 15 years ago, he would visit me when I still lived in the West End and, and when he was in London, he'd just pop by and have a cup of tea and, you know, and, and look at him now. Yeah. So it, I feel very proud of that. You know, I know I'm not in touch with him anymore, but it's, and I'm still in touch with, you know, the makeup artist when she's here and, and, uh, Di Moffat, who is the, um, script supervisor and a script supervisor on, on probably many films that you've seen from Lord of the Rings to countless films that are shot in New Zealand and globally. And me and her have probably remained the closest. And every time she's in London, we go for dinner and we catch up and we're on constant email each other. And, you know, it's wonderful to keep that relationship going over all of these, you know, all these years. It's 22 years now, isn't it? It must be 2006 seven shooting yeah so 21 years so how did you make the move from acting into casting which you've done since what like 2007 i think you started working as a yes yeah so i did a tv series called the bill which is a very famous because a cop show here uh that's no longer and i was on that show and I remember all the trappings that you get as an actor, you know, your trailer being picked up in a car, all the little sort of the the little frills that you get with being an actor, the luxuries. Uh, they used to always excite me. You know, you get a, a TV job or a film job and you get all those bits and pieces and and it just didn't excite me. And I knew in my heart having, and I think it's probably because I'd been doing it for so long, even though I was only in my mid-30s, I'd been doing it since I was seven. So I'd already had this huge stretch of time. And I always wonder, what would I do if I didn't act? And to be honest, it's the industry I've known all of my life. And I've always, I have a huge passion for television. I always have since I was a child. I have a huge passion for film. Uh, I love theater. I adore theater. Television um, and film, you know, I can sit. You know, if I could retire tomorrow and, and, and move to New Zealand and just sit watching television film for the rest of my life and eat sweets and candies and not get fat, and then I would be a happy man. So I knew whenever I watch anything, be it film or television, I would always cast in my head. And I'm sure you do it, you know, as a, as a, as a film fan, you watch things and you knowing actors as you do and understanding how that works and, and watching people's skill set and, and, and thinking, Oh, 
I don't think she was right for that or he was right for that. Maybe, wouldn't he have been great in this? And wouldn't she have been better in that? And I think as an audience member, that's what we always do. We have our movie stars and our screen stars and our actors that we love and, and we want to see them in certain things and we wish they were in other things that they're not in. And so in a way, we're all sort of amateur casting directors um, with opinions. And and I always thought that's something I'd want to do when I started from scratch. I knew that I would have to be an assistant. I knew I'd, you know, be starting from the beginning, obviously with a knowledge of the industry, but not a knowledge of how the process of casting works only knowledge from it from an actor's point of view in a room with cast directors and i had to relearn a lot of stuff it's you know even though it's in the same industry there's so much information that casting directors have and things that we do that i sort of was, was blind to as an actor and it's been an incredible exciting journey relearning a new skill set in an industry that I love and, and interestingly finding my vocation and realizing that I, as ambitious as I was as an actor, I wasn't actually that ambitious. And it's really interesting. You should ask me that question about what heaven did for me. If that had happened to me now as a, as a, as a young actor now in 2018, I would have capitalized. Well, I mean, we have social media to help propel those things, but I, I didn't chase it. I didn't push for, you know, I didn't push my agent to sort of use that as a as a tool to push me forward. I I was probably not lazy, but sort of not as I was unambitious. Whereas as a casting director, I'm ambitious, and I I have a trajectory, and I'm hitting that trajectory, and I and I'm excited by each project I do, and I can see where my future's going, and I and all of these years of understanding and of, of actors and the love of actors and love of act. You know all the actors that I've worked with, learning from them, and and now being able to impart that information, support, and nurture actors—an absolute thrill and an honour. And I say that, you know, with not, not sounding ridiculous. I I feel very privileged, and I feel very excited when I discover a new talent. I feel very excited when I nurture talent, um, and I enjoy the process of casting. I enjoy the process of, of debating and talking with act, with directors and producers and saying, do you know this person? Do you know that person? And, and, you know, why you should like that person and, and being the person that, that people come to for that knowledge. So it was making those starting from scratch, making cups of tea, working for other casting directors and, and building up going that way. And then you become a casting associate and then you, you, you go solo and you take that leap and, and it's thankfully paid off and I'm doing some really exciting stuff and I've, you know, discovered some new talents and that have now doing very, very well, which I'm very proud of. And, but it's great to have, to have a conversation with someone like you and talk about my acting past because it may, I can talk about it on reflection with real pride. Um, and no regret. Absolutely no regret. You know, I think if I was doing something completely different in a different industry, then I would, possibly have a twinge of regret but I don't have any and if I do people say to me but don't you miss actually performing and I think well actually I get my kicks from performing because I read in with the actors in a, in a casting room so I'm reading I'm acting every day when I'm reading script with with actors so if I've got to fulfill any of that it's still in my in my brain and my heart I that's filled in those moments of just reading with actors 
so yeah that's how it's sort of that's been the trajectory and that's how it sort of happened I am curious, you were doing the cabaret for a long time before, well, for a while before you actually got cast. After Heaven, did you continue to do the cabaret at all, or was that the end of that as well? It was the end of the cabaret because I think the being taken seriously as an actor, because they the two things had merged, so I was the go-to actor if you wanted the, you know, a transgender character, go to Daniel Edwards, because, you know, he does it brilliantly and look at his body of work. But then, you know, and in the evenings, I'd sing in the cabaret, jazz cabaret venue in, in, in Soho. And and then it just all became a blur. And I was thinking, like, if I, if, if I want to play straight roles and people that only ever see me in transgender roles or drag queen roles, both in my social life and in my professional life, then I'm never going to be able to interestingly sort of convince casting directors that I can play anything other than that. Um, so I knew that I had to make a decision to stop doing, doing the drag as, you know, as a social art form or, 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 or as a cabaret in the evening because I had to make that decision. And I didn't work as an actor for over a year. And I, you know, and I, and I also wouldn't take any roles where it required me to look like a woman as an actor. So I literally was unemployed for a year, but it, it, it paid off because then I started to get auditions for standard husband of boyfriend of. So it sort of paid off. So I had to make, and it was a shame because I, I was good. The cabaret, cause I sang live and I had so much fun. And, but also you, you get older, you know, you, you hit your late twenties and suddenly you can't be out till three o'clock in the morning. You know, you, you, you just, it's like, you know, especially if you're made up and you're staggering home drunk in, in stiletto heels and you just think, I can't, I can't do this. I'm nearly 30. I can't do this. Um, because I was just too, too tired. And also, you know, you have an audition at, you know, 10 o'clock the following morning and, and you've been up till three o'clock, at, you know, singing in a jazz bar. So I had to make that decision and, and it was the right. And it goes back to about instinct. I've always, gone with what I sort of think actually hang on a second how do I feel about this I love it it's been brilliant but I don't feel it's right for me anymore and making that decision and and holding your nerve I mean so many actors you know and or anybody in any walk of life sometimes you have to hold your nerve and think okay I may be poor for a year or however long but the long term this is the long game here you know if I'm out of work for a while, if it, if it pays off in the end when people have, are not coming to me with those roles all the time, then it's, it was the right thing to do. Mr. Edwards, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you and for, for listening to me ramble on. Um, and good luck piecing all of that together, piecing that all that together. I'd love you to say, you know, when you, when it's all together and you're, I don't know how you, your podcast were, but I'd love to hear it, not just purely just because it'd be lovely to hear it. Next, you're going to hear from Tree, Jeremy Birchall. How did you get interested in show business? What made you choose that line of work? Both my parents, in some respects, were involved in the arts. I grew up in the small town of Masterton, New Zealand, and my mum was a dance teacher, and my father was an English drama teacher. 
and um, they both run, uh, I suppose, what you call uh, in your country um, community theatre. We call it sort of Amdram here, amateur uh, theatre. And uh, they used to run children's um, uh, classes, so that's how I got in, uh, involved at an early age. And then I started dancing at the age of 10 and speech and drama. And uh, I think the rest is history in regards to that. I just kept going and enjoyed it. I kept it for my friends, though, because it was such a small town. Um, back in the uh, 80s and 90s, it wasn't the um, the cool thing to do, really. Um, not till later on, when I got older, um, and it sort of uh, became common knowledge that I was dancing and, and uh, I was um, sort of doing theatre, my mates would turn around and say, hey, um, could you introduce me to your... You know, your friends over there, your, your girlfriends over there. I was like, all oh, right, now now it's cool. <laughs> so, yeah, I went to school uh, with Jermaine Clement as well. So um, Jermaine and I used to sort of hang out together and play music. And, um, yeah, and then uh, we, we did one school show together, which my parents directed, um, and our senior year. Um, our last year at um, college and then I went off to drama school um, in Auckland and I think Jermaine went down to Wellington. I mean the rest is history for Jermaine so he uh, then later formed Flight the Concords and I just sort of uh, hustled up here in Auckland. When you got out of college for uh, drama, what was the scene like in New Zealand at that time? Because I know for a little while that was like a real hotbed, like uh, being uh, – I'm a huge fan of Sam Raimi, local boy Sam Raimi, and I know that he was shooting a lot of stuff down in New Zealand for a long time. When I got out of drama school, uh, yeah, I studied there for two years. The scene just took off. Hercules had just started. Um, I think that might have started in my second year of drama school, so it was sort of the first – real big international production that was going to be long-term uh, in Auckland. And then Xena was um, soon to follow, which I've worked on both and done small bits and pieces on those shows. I was also um, Ted Ramey's dance double as well as his split-screen double. So that was an uh, unusual uh, sort of gig of because he had, um, te- uh, Ted Ramey had, there were triplets, so there was um, Joxa, Jet, and Jace. So when he was uh, playing the other characters, I would play um, his other brothers, um, doing the offlines to him. Um, so yeah, that was uh, sort of I got both sort of um, gigs on that, and then there were a couple of other shows that sort of rolled on from that. It was um, Jack of All Trades and Cleopatra 2525, which I think were all part of Pacific Renaissance, which was the same company. And then that started rolling out more and more. We started seeing more international film productions down here. I think our dollar was quite competitive. Um, And also um, on the uh, geographical sense, the the country was starting to get noticed um, for its... uh, picturesque scenery, um, how you could be in, on a snowy mountain um, and, and like 30 minutes be down the mountain in a desert. You know, it's very, very versatile as a uh, country. And um, the crew started to get here incredibly seasoned through those shows like uh, Hercules and Xena. And we have this incredible mentality down here that um, nothing is too hard. 
we're kind of yes people, and uh, I, I think that was really for uh, international folks um, coming down here. That's where it all started to really kick off. I mean, there were there were other international productions down uh, here before that, but that's when I think uh, the world started to shine a spotlight on New Zealand. And um, thanks to uh, Rob Tappet and um, you know uh, Sam Ramey and, and that they they really gave a lot of people opportunities and continue to to do that as well. I mean, as you know, uh, probably Spartacus um, that's that went for I think four seasons, Legend of the Seeker, yeah, and uh, Evil Dead as well. I think that's gone for three seasons. So yeah, that's that's brought so much work down here, and that's just television. So tell me, how did you get involved with Heaven? I was out of drama school, it must have been two years, and then I got a casting notice from my agent. Probably in those days it was faxed to me. And it was a relatively secret production. I don't think um, the production company was attached to it. It was the director and the casting director and that they were looking for um, some characters. So I went along to an audition not really knowing a lot about if it was a local production. I thought it was a local production at that stage um, and that it was just solely local. Um, and then I went audition for Liz Mullane, um, who now is uh, quite a big casting director for international stuff for Peter Jackson. I left there thinking, yeah, that was a pretty good job. Uh, in this country, it's a little bit different than I think in the States. In the UK, we have to uh, learn our scripts and we have to go in uh, knowing them off the off the, off the the page. So uh, I put a bit of work into it, thought nothing of it. And then I think a few weeks later, I got a call back for the role of Tree. And I thought, I'll better put a bit more effort in. I think I might have uh, put a bit of a costume together. Went in and saw Liz. And then I think I pretty much did the same script. I mean, we're talking about 20-something years ago now. It was, must have been about, it would have been 96 that I auditioned. Because we made it in 1997. I got the call that um, I'd got the role. And I didn't know really anything about the scale of it at that stage. I thought it was, you know, uh, quite quite a small production. And then it wasn't until I went away home for Christmas and I was talking about it. I said, um, I think there's a production company. I was talking to a friend that was uh, Mirror, Mirror, he said Miramax. And I said, yeah, yeah, uh, that. And then this is, I think this must have been pre-Google um, because I, I didn't really know um, on the scale of what I was getting involved in. And then it's sort of, uh, as we started going into pre-production, it was like, oh, okay, we're working with an international cast. So that's uh, that was my sort of induction into the whole film. Probably quite good actually because I was quite relaxed about the whole thing. The uh, I don't really care kind of thing. Um, you know, straight up drama school bravado. <laughs> this is before you worked on the Xena stuff because I'm trying to remember. Like this was shot well before it ended up coming out. If memory serves. Yeah, it was shot before then. It was it was shortly after that I went and worked on a bit of Xena stuff. Yeah. So you were still wet behind the ears. Yeah, totally. I'd just done theatre, New Zealand touring theatre, children's theatre. Um, I was still hustling, uh, doing promotions, you know, just trying to make the rent. And, um, you know, I didn't pin much to it um, at that stage. And so this was a really big deal for me. I was only, I must have been only about 21, 22, I think, 22. And I, I think my birthday uh, happened, my 23rd birthday, around the production. So, yeah, the whole thing was just an incredible ride. Well, it must have been an interesting experience to be working 
one on a, a film and then having to train yourself to do film acting rather than theater acting? Or had you done film acting before that? We trained it drama school uh, and film acting, but you're right. I mean, going, uh, changing that uh, theatrical muscle is something that is not always natural. So if you are doing a lot of stage work and then you often get an audition to go in uh, for television or film, you really have to tone it back. It was the stars aligned at that stage. I think the strangest thing that I always, I've worked with Scott, a couple of times I worked on a, a television show with him as well. He he brought me in for an episode he was directing. And it was a character that was dark as well. I always go, what did he see in me that has those qualities? I don't think film you can't lie on it so much. You can't you can't be dishonest. And I think there's always an element of you there. And as as you've seen the film Heaven the, the character trees is very dark. And that was a bit of a mind-bending scenario for me as as a young actor. I have a better grip on it now and a more philosophical approach to it or understanding of uh, of the craft that we all have these these elements inside of ourselves. But um, it was something that I I did go deep inside uh, to uh, sort of draw out more so that was that had ever been explored before. So what was your experience like on the film? The first general impression, I suppose, is life-changing. It was all these most amazing, still amazing, still very, very successful actors coming together to tell this very unusual, chronological, mixed-up movie. And it was a ride, a real roller coaster ride. I mean, we're working sometimes through the evening. I remember driving to work at sort of like six o'clock in the evening as everybody's sort of driving home from work and having breakfast on stage and then doing that maybe for a week and then turning around the following week going into day shoots. It was just so unusual but exhilarating at the same time. And, and you know what um, is really, really cool? I got to work actually with one of my classmates, um, which is Clint Sharplin, who played nicely. We both were in the same two years of drama school together. So we got to go through this whole experience together and we were like, wow. <laughs> I think they, I think at that stage they, they made us share a trailer, but we were like sitting in our trailer and going, this is what we kind of had dreamed of um, working in, in uh, film and working with great actors. And, you know, um, I didn't really know much about Richard Shift at that, that time. And, uh, you know, um, we, we have the um, uh, the internet to be able to just sort of go and resource stuff. But um, I did a little bit, and this guy had a huge backlog at that stage um, of stuff. He'd done Tank Girl, and he'd done, um, yeah, he's, he was the actor's actor. He was like the chameleon before he really took off in the West Wing um, because he was just everywhere. I, I started watching movies post-Heaven, and I was like, oh, there's Richard again. There's Richard and another series. There's Richard. He's just popped up doing a... Um, another character and and the guy was um just so incredible to be around he was just you know um he was he was what i imagined working with uh great american actors he was immersed he was um incredibly uh giving he was temperamental um and uh he was incredibly sarcastic and there were a lot of people <laughs> you know i don't think understood understood that humor but um 
uh, Clinton, Clinton and I loved it. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, he would yell out, uh, I'm not sure, you know, you might be able to bleep me out there, but I'll fucking sue you like I fucking sue Disney. I think he said, <laughs> he said that to Scott or something like the producer, but, uh, you know, um, all tongue in cheek, I think. But uh, I think he was brought into the production um, quite early on and he wasn't shooting for like maybe a week out. And then, uh, <laughs> I don't know if he really appreciated sitting around waiting for that to happen, but. Yeah, watching him do takes was just incredible. He was totally in command of the uh, uh, the environment, and everyone everyone just stopped and looked at the split screen. Yeah, my first night um, on shooting ever, I suppose the uh, the inaugural night of shooting on a, a film for me was um, I'll never forget. Um, it was we were shooting near the end of the movie, so we're totally out of sequence. Um, so it was, it was the mo, it was the fight scene at the end where, um, Carlo Ban had me on the ground and he was punching me, um, uh, in the face. And so it, w- it was quite nice because I didn't have to, um, you know, I, I didn't have any di- dialogue. It was all action. We'd, um, rehearse some stunts and, um, I could just, uh, sort of immerse myself in the physical side of it, um, first to sort of break the ice. Um, but, uh, I got I got punched in the face by Carl. He, he got himself really really worked up, and I think you know the, the atmosphere was exceptionally electric, and um, everyone was nervous because we were just trying to you know get the scene done. It was uh, in Parnell in Auckland. There was there was a lot of elements happening. So there was the car in the alleyway. They were they were wetting. They were you know there was a wet down on the ground. They were trying to keep that wet. There was you know lights and. And they were trying to get the location of where everybody was to be so that um, nobody could be seen down that alleyway and they could actually just have the the people that they needed in that alleyway. So, um, yeah, I just, uh, I think time was probably against us too. And then Carl got himself worked up, grabbed me by the collar. I think we went into action and he just clocked me straight across the, um, the face. And it was like, uh, I think Scott came out um, behind the, um, the video split and just said, what the, what the fuck? And because uh, they knew at that stage if I um, probably had had a, um, a bruised cheek um, going back into the, the rest of the production for the month, how, how could you have explained it? So working up to that moment, they would have had to either put makeup on it or I would have had to be bruised up prior to that moment. <laughs> um, yeah, but luckily uh, he didn't. Um, he didn't mark me. <laughs> That was my my inaugural introduction to filmmaking at a professional level, I suppose. <laughs> well, by that time, Carlo Ben had already he'd been around the block a little bit because I know he'd been working for yeah. a number of years. So, were you and Clint kind of the new guys on the the shoot? Yeah, most definitely. Uh, we were the new newbie actors, uh, young. 20 year olds uh, stars in her eyes working on the uh, on the um, set I mean Carl Carl had done quite a few uh, local films and then he went off to uh, get a role I think in Xena or Hercules um, and then of course his uh, star has definitely risen from there but yeah I mean I think Carl um, too at that stage felt the pressure and um, the three of us as local uh, Kiwis we sort of hung out with Dan- Danny a little bit as well Um uh, as um, he was new to uh, New Zealand, um, he was doing such an incredibly um, difficult role. He was quite isolated. So we would go around, um, the three of us, and hang out with uh, Daniel. 
um, when we weren't shooting and just sort of, um, you know, have a few drinks and um, sort of reflect on the process at that stage. Um, but I think one of the most nervous people, and I think the reserve, most reserved person coming into the production was uh, probably uh, Martin Donovan. Um, he he was quite guarded. Um, his guard fell um, later on, um, as I think um, he understood um, our culture here. Um, he'd been very seasoned before. I think I, um, because I have a, a quite a big fight scene with him towards the end. Um, and with 35 millimeter set up, it's, it's a lot different now than, uh, multicam HD. You can shoot it in two, three, you know, um, camera angles now and, and do less shooting. But, um, we had to be very choreographed, very precise about what we're doing so we can, uh, for one reason, get the um the continuity of it right and, and then for another reason i think the safety of it um he had had a really bad experience i think on a hal hartley movie one of them prior to coming on this production so he was really nervous about the fight stuff um and um so we were sort of briefed about how he felt about that and we rehearsed down to the millimeter so i didn't really get to know him toward till the end of the production well we talked about you guys being kind of the the new guys in front of the camera was this a a New Zealand crew, or was it a mixed crew? No, it was all New Zealand crew. As far as I know, yeah, it was um, all New Zealand. Yeah, yeah so, um, yeah, it was it was just fantastic because, well, I think it was all fantastic for us newbies like Clint and I and, and Carl because we all have our um, shortcuts to humor, so we're, we're quite dry, sarcastic humor down here in New Zealand. So, um I don't know how that was always taken by the, the international actors. I think Patrick Malahide totally, yeah, totally um, gets that, um, um, being English and everything, and, and Danny as well. But um, it's it's a little bit of a strange uh, humour, I think, for the American actors. Not so much now, I think, you know, um, as we're a little bit more exposed New Zealanders in mainstream culture, the uh, predominantly all New Zealand um, cast and crew, uh, I mean crew, uh, yeah, predominantly all uh, New Zealand crew. Looking at your CV, I I almost want to ask, well, how was it shooting the sequel, The Other Side of Heaven, in 2001? Ah, yeah. <laughs> I was really disappointed that I got involved. It was originally called, um, I can't even, it didn't have a different name to it, that film, and then it got The Other Side of Heaven. I was like, yeah, it does look like a sequel to that film. I had a, a dance scene in that film with um, Anne Hathaway. That she was very young and she came down here pre all the Disney stuff, yeah. So yeah, that that film was um it was a Mormon a Mormon themed film about um uh, Mormons going to uh the Pacific Islands to convert people to um to their their brand of religion. For a long time you've been involved with the Power Rangers. How did you get involved with that? I was doing um ADR it was for Riverworld the uh, TV pilot that I did for Sci-Fi Channel, and <laughs> I was just doing silly voices and and having a bit of fun in there. And then the lady that was coordinating, uh, she said, hey, "You should come and try out for Power Rangers." And um, and then that sort of started uh, that journey for me back in uh, around about 2003. So yeah, I must have, actually 2001 is when I was in there doing ADR. So yeah, that's how it started out, and then from there, I've I've joined loop groups and um, had uh, various monsters on that production. Uh, well, I think I've done fifteen years on it now. 
And um, and people ask me if I've ever watched an episode. I, I don't think I've ever watched a full episode of Power Rangers. <laughs> I've done one of the games as well. I think uh, that was pretty trippy. Um, matching one of the actors, I think, uh, who, the Gold Ranger. can't remember his name, but um, yeah, he, he didn't want to come back and do the game, so I had to match his, match his voice. That is on your CV a lot, is loop artist or loop captain. What, what does that entail? Uh, do you know anything about what looping is? Well, is that kind of another name for ADR? Yeah, so ADR is um, automatic uh, or additional dialogue replacement, um, which is uh, usually, um, you, so you're either uh, replacing the dialogue of um, of your own character or uh, another character, which I've um, done as well within loop groups. But loop groups are um, brought together to do the the background talent um, of films or television, uh, sometimes the stunt voices. So all that stuff is um, recorded post the production. So if there's cafe scenes, um, we do all the um, what we call international waller. It's not in, uh, especially Power Rangers, because it's sold uh, over multiple, um, uh, you know, um, uh, continents uh, and in Spain and in America, and I think in Eastern Bloc countries. So we we create a, a sort of a gibberish language, which is um, not very specific. But um, and then we do those in scenes, and then sometimes within those loop groups, we have to do um, recreate all the um, the fight scenes as well. And then sometimes if the actor is not quite good, um, the one that they have chosen, we will sometimes replace their voice. Um, and I've done that a few times with some well-known actors and um, had to uh, redo their voices for them. One of the things that's quite interesting about it, I've worked, I've worked on Spartacus, but it's exceptionally grueling and hard work because uh, some of those sessions are five hours and um, uh, they're... Uh, like doing the Colosseum for Spartacus was incredibly difficult. Like we just would just go Spartacus, Spartacus, ah, like that for like maybe two or three hours, and then we'd go on to the next cues, which was then ah, and and that. So uh, I think one of the seasons I was Spartacus's um, efforts double uh, vocally. So he was too busy filming, so I do his his writing writing efforts and his um you know uh fight efforts every once in a while and uh but never his sex efforts so he'd do his own sex effort but it's honestly it's it's hilarious if you're in the room and you've got 10 actors and, and sometimes those rooms have 10 actors in them you know five females five men and um you know and the other and the other side there's uh uh on the other side of the wall is the uh the engineer and um the the vocal director and um sometimes somebody else is sitting online in America listening to us and they say okay we're going to do this now, um, and, and 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 it's and if you just close your eyes, it's just incredibly stupid what we're doing to get paid. You know, we're getting paid to do sex efforts, and, and then to watch <laughs> specific sex efforts or orgy stuff is just—I know—it's mind tripping. You just go, oh, "Wow, I get paid to do this. It's weird. Such a weird job." Uh, I'm currently working on. Um, uh, a, video, a video game, uh, Path of Exile, um, which I'm doing. Um, I'm, I'm doing the voice directing on that. So I, I sit on the other side of the booth now and uh, direct the voices for that. So that's fun. So I imagine you must be able to do all kinds of accents, and especially an American accent, I imagine. Yeah, I mean, I still get it wrong. 
we have um, vocal coaches down here that sit on the other side. But um, we in New Zealand struggle with our R's sometimes with uh, the placement of where our tongue is and you you can't hear it it's just such a strange thing and you know and of course when you're doing uh, um you know you're doing a monster voice like that you're so loud in your head you can't even hear hear yourself it's just uh, it's just uh, ridiculous um but yeah um all sorts of silly voices um and sort of um uh, impersonations and stuff like that uh, i've got to do a new voice reel you've just reminded me but uh uh, it's, it, I'm always really surprised at um, how fresh it always is, and we don't. Uh, there's always something new to do. Um, but I have a theory that I think that we only probably have about eight, uh, four voices inside of us, and um, we just have a slight variation on that. And at one stage, I was going in for so many, so many Power Rangers or you know um, other animation stuff. I, I, I couldn't find anything new, so I was sticking uh, spoons in my mouth. Um, to try and trying to create different cavities to to create voices, and um, I've, come, I've 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 become more peaceful for the fact that I, I I've really only just got <laughs> I think I've used them all now, <laughs> and I come back into Power Rangers and I show, I do something like another audition for it, um, and uh, and that's the voice I did like ten years ago. I'm pretty sure of it. <laughs> so, are you working still in front of the camera, or are you almost all behind the camera in the recording booth? So the last time I did was Crack Kids. That was a local production, um, and that was shot in 2012, and I think it was released in 2014. Um, it's, uh, so that was the last time I did a film, and it was really uh, a wonderful experience, actually. I would probably say uh, it had the same feel to me that Heaven had, which was I felt fresh again at it, and I felt... Uh, a sense of, uh, I suppose, control in what I was doing. Um, And I think it was because it it, it felt indie. As much as Heaven was, you know, I I don't know what the budget was on it, but there must have been a few million thrown at it. But uh, Heaven still felt like an an, an indie film um, where some of the other stuff, like, you know, I've worked, the sci-fi channel or something like that. It just didn't, it doesn't have that sort of feel to it. Um, everyone's a little bit more on edge on, on the set because there's, there's a lot of people around. There's a lot of people watching what's happening and they're, they're trying to get it right for, you know, potential launch for a series or something like that. And, you know, Xena and Hercules, of course, is, you know, a huge um, uh, machine as well. So, um, yeah, that, that production was um, the last I worked on. But uh, behind, behind the camera, working in post-production, and uh, for sound, and I do a few ads every once in a while, but I've been back on the stage, which I love, you know, working um, in the theatre. Uh, in 2016, I, I did Billy Elliot. I was um, I did a production of that for about, I think I worked from August to December on that, uh, playing Mr. Braithwaite. And then I, I choreograph as well. There's a whole other side of my life that... Um, uh, I can draw an income from, which is um, um, I've worked as a dancer and a choreographer, and um, that's um, thanks to my mum, who said, "You know what? You need as many strings to your bow as you possibly can." So that's what I did. So I have that really lucky thing that I can I can have my acting, but I can do my voice and I can fall back on my dance as well. And I find it all informs each other. Um, the interesting thing about you would say how would dance help you in the voice um, in the voice work? 
Um, I think the reason is I've been successful with my voice work is because I'm a dancer. It's because I can watch long fight sequences and learn all the choreography from the fight sequence within just watching it and then voice it. So it's it's been a, ra- a rather great marriage of those two skills. So yeah, I, I mean, I really would love to get back out in front of the camera again uh, if that opportunity arises sometime in the future. Well, after talking to you and talking to Daniel Edwards, it really feels like heaven was a, a, a very bonding experience. It sounds like you guys, you and other people are still friends today after this experience from the late 90s. Yeah, you're right. Daniel and myself uh, were kind of kindred spirits in that sense because we were going on this amazing ride together. He'd been flying out to New Zealand and I was um, working with some incredibly amazing actors, um, as he was too. And uh, when my wife and I went to uh, London, we lived there for a couple of years, you know, Daniel and I would catch up often um, and we're still still friends. Um, and I'm in awe of his journey as well, where he's um, ended up as an incredible casting director now and doing um, amazing things and being so involved in, uh, in art and the way that he is. But um, yeah, he's, a, he's an incredibly giving person. And people like Di Moffat, who was the um, continuity uh, uh, person on set, um, I've worked with her a few times on various projects, but... Um, we all seem to sort of wind back up on sets together in this country because it's such a small community. And we go, I know your face. Oh, we worked on so-and-so um, together. And there's definitely a, a bond that's um, formed in this community, good and bad. But, yeah, it's, um, it's incredible. I think that, that film was magical in some ways because Scott Reynolds, was he was so young and so passionate. I think he was only 28 when he made it. And he was very, very particular how he wanted things. He knew how the whole thing was going to edit together. I mean, just reading the script, it's very, very confusing. But when you see it on screen, it's I think it's genius um, based on that, um, the book, which I've, I've um, only just recently picked up again. I thought I should read this again. Had you read it before you were in it? No, I didn't. I deliberately didn't. It's the same when I did um, Riverworld. I didn't. I didn't want to read the the Riverworld series um, to sort of create a character based on somebody else's perception of it. Because obviously, when you're you can create your backstory usually through the script, the film script, and and knowing where you are and what you're doing between A and B, and then you arrive at the club and and that sort of stuff. But there were some secrets that um, Scott had about the characters that I don't think he ever, uh, that's our characters, it was Tree and Nicely, that he never really divulged about how he saw them. Both Clint and I formed our opinions over them. They're kind of mysterious, I think, uh, in quite a few respects, and, and that they sort of are such um, driving forces towards the end of the film and, and how they steer people's destiny. And a, and a catalyst for a huge amount of change for um, some of those um, integral characters in there. Uh, but yeah, I, I have deliberately stayed away from uh, reading um, Chad Taylor's um, book about it, that pr- prior to the film, um, and form my own opinion based because I thought I thought when Scott looked at us um, through the audition process, he could see the characters, and we assumed the characters. 
going back and reading Chad Taylor's book, how did you feel that your your character either matched up or didn't match up to the ones that he read, wrote? I don't know what other actors experience um, with this um, scenario is, but it's very, very difficult to um, then read a book without putting yourself then in the character. Um, that was my experience. It's, it's, I, I, I am that three dimensional person now, the person that was created. Um, so that's my own special, I suppose, contribution to that. And I, I, it would be totally somebody else's experience if they'd never seen the film. Um, and then watching the film and going, oh, that's kind of interesting what he did with that. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that would be the same for um, for Danny as well as anyone. But uh, yeah, I, I really don't. I don't really know. <laughs> to <tell you> the truth. <laughs> well, Jeremy, thank you so much for your time today. This has been great talking with you. Thank you. It's um, it's great to revisit this um, amazing catalyst from the past. It's it's been with my journey all the way through my acting career. Last but definitely not least is author Chad Taylor. Can you tell me about how you got into writing? I have my first short stories published in 1988. I've always written and I've always drawn, and I always liked movies, but I always was drawn to the the stories and the script ideas. And uh, I mean, I've always wanted to write, and I like novels. I, I work more on my own, I work, so I tend to work more on prose than I do collaborate with other people. But I had my first novel, Pack of Lies, published in 1994, I think. And Heaven was after that, but I was writing both of them more or less at the same time. How is that, juggling two books at the same time? Oh, it's good. When you come to a problem in one, you stop and you work on the other. It's a good way to work. How did the idea for Heaven come to you? Pack of Lies is narrated by a woman or a young woman. And when I was writing Heaven, I had the idea that maybe I was, I'm very into the idea of an unreliable narrator. And I, I sort of had this joke idea that maybe the, 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 the narrator at the end of Pack of Lies would reveal herself to be a man, um, i.e. The, the male author. And I, see, I guess that sort of leached into Heaven. I was working in Grey Lane in, in Auckland, in the central city, and I was walking through I, to get to work and to get home again. I'd have to walk through the, so basically this sort of little red light strip called K Road, and I'd be passing all these people. And um, that was kind of where I got the idea. Started to think this would be a good setting for a story, but I think it was really. It, the germ of the idea was actually a sort of science fiction idea, the idea of an alien or someone who's outside of the society that we're in now, but is, has sort of, I don't want to say superpowers, but, you know, extra abilities as a result of their being alien, someone who, who, who doesn't belong in this world, but has certain advantages in this world. And I, I did think of heaven. It wasn't so much a, a sort of work of social realism or anything. It was so much as in the, the idea of a, a um, an alien creature who had the special ability but wasn't necessarily going to succeed in society because of it. So it sort of followed a kind of a the sort of story that you see in the outer limits of the Twilight Zone or 
in sort of pulp science fiction, there was a book by Leo P. Kelly called The Earth Tripper, which I really liked when I was a kid. It has the story, the bones of the story has a lot in common with that. I think it, so it really started as a kind of science fiction idea, even though at the time I wasn't wrote, telling myself that I was writing science fiction, and it's not a science fiction novel. It feels to me like a like a neo-noir, like a crime novel kind of retold, and I'm curious, is that fairly typical for the genre that you work in, or what are what are some of your favorite places to go when you're writing? It's totally typical. I mean, I, I like noir and I like science fiction, and the two have a lot in common, or they used to, and I think actually you're seeing them merge again now and a lot of stuff that's coming out. But I've always liked, um, and I'm just looking at my bookcase, it's James Elroy and uh, who else? Delcroix, Pete Dexter, William Gibson, Walter Mosley. I've always been influenced by, yeah, it, it's basically noir. I'm not expressing myself very well, but I write sort of noir novels. What's been your relationship with movies over the years? I've always wanted to work in movies, but I'm not necessarily the right sort of temperament for it. I um, have written couple of short movies, short films that were produced, one called Funny Little Guy, about, um, which was a science fiction, little science fiction film, a short called The Alibi Girl that was directed by Clinton Phillips that was a um, sort of a surreal sort of noir, and a feature called Reality, which was directed by Jonathan King that was at, I think, Fantastic Fest a couple of years ago. I've li- I like movie ideas. I like um, writing for that genre, I'm not really very interested in discussing it with producers or revising or doing any of that sort of down and dirty stuff that you need to do to get a movie made. I just like to, I tend to take one shot at it and then um, move on. Did I read right? Did you write a video game as well? Oh, I wrote a, um, yeah, I wrote scripts for voiceover for a um, a CD-ROM interactive (laughs) back in the days. And that was new media. That was in 1999. There was a, um, sort of tutorial getting to Mars kind of CD-ROM adventure game, and they needed dialogue for it, and I sort of wrote a story, wrote a narrative around it, and it was sort of exploring the solar system, that kind of thing. Yeah, so I was directing um, voice actors for it, actually. Yeah, it was at the time, it was, it was exciting because the technology had a lot of possibilities, but you remember computers back then, they just were nothing like they are now. So it was... Sort of a quite a nice problem solving exercise as an author. So tell me about when heaven gets optioned. How does that go for you? Well, it was good in that it got optioned. It was, like I said, my second novel. I met with Sue Rogers, the producer. She was very keen on it. Um, and we talked about it. Initially, I was sort of interested in writing the screenplay. But I sort of decided quite rapidly that that wasn't what I wanted to do. How did you make that decision? Or was it made for you? Oh, no, I made the decision. It was um, just a sort of timing and temperament thing. Having already written the novel, I didn't feel like writing it again. Um, And I didn't feel like writing a different version of it because I'd already done it. You know, it's like it was finished for me. And I could see that I was going to have to go in and all the thinking that I'd done over, I guess, the year and a half it had taken me to write it. Maybe it was a little bit more. I would have to go back and un- unpick all that stitching and then justify all those decisions that I'd made internally and satisfied myself with. And then I would have to do them again. 
And so we had a couple of meetings about it and I talked about it and, and I did have this idea of it sort of being more surreal and more of a science fiction film. I mean, at one point Sue said, you know, who do you, do you see directing it? And I said, John Carpenter because of Starman, you know, that idea of something, someone that's touched down from another place in a natural landscape. But it sort of just became apparent quite soon that it just wasn't going to work. Like my, my process is not organized enough. I don't write treatments or outlines. I sort of start straight in on the thing. I know which, which parts of the story I sort of am most interested in. I sort of start from there and work outwards rather than writing in a line. And that's trying for other people to follow. I just, you know, wrote her an email and said, no, I just don't think it's going to work. And, and that was fine. So help me out. Do you, you start maybe in the middle of the story and then write the end and the beginning at the same time? Or how does that go? I know the beginning and I know the end. I know the title. But generally, I start with the thing that interests me the most about a story. And the, the thing that interests me the most might in the final draft end up being half a page, or it might end up being a major character, or it might end up being a very big part of the plot. You don't know when you start writing the thing that interests you, whether that's going to be, you know, that's going to constitute a lot of words or very few. Is it one of those things where you kind of get to know your characters as you're writing them? Yeah, definitely. And you do have a, you do have much more scope with prose. You don't need to say he's, you know, 25 and five foot six. All that stuff just comes more gradually. And I think that there's a rush to lock off those ideas early on in a lot of script development that I've been involved with anyway. And I sort of tend to think, you know, I, I will have a big section of dialogue and then think, well, I'd have one character saying that, but actually, you know, another character could say that just as well. It would be better, in fact. Quite often I end up moving things around a lot. And in a way that I think if you were a reader of the work and seeing what the author would is doing, it would probably take a lot of the magic out of it for you. It's sort of like peeking behind the curtain. Writing is much more, um, it's a really enjoyably mechanical process sometimes. So once you email Sue and you say, yeah, no, I'm not into writing the script, what happens next for you? I went off and wrote another novel, and I heard almost nothing. I actually didn't hear anything about it until I was in Auckland, and and someone said to me, oh, hey, I've been, you know, we've all been working on your film. <laughs> Um, which, and I, which obviously not, you know, the film of your book, then by that, that's what they mean by that. And, uh, I was like, oh, okay. So it must be filming. That's literally what I heard because again, pre-internet days, if someone doesn't tell you, you don't know what's happening. So the next thing I knew was being filmed. Did you meet with, um, Sue or, or Scott Reynolds very much before they started doing it? Or were you just pretty much out of the process? Out of the process. Um, they, they went off and did it themselves. So what is that like for you as the author of the original work coming back and seeing what somebody else did with your baby, basically? Quite difficult. Um, it wasn't a, a hostile situation. It was just a um, just not being involved. It's sort of, I don't know, it, it's, it was quite strange. It was, um, and watching the movie, it's quite strange because, you know, there are passages where there's dialogue from the, the novel, and it's a weird it's not like deja vu. You don't, you don't I don't recognize the stuff that I've written straight away. But then sometimes I think, oh, that's, is that something I wrote? You know, um, it's quite 
It's just strange. It's it's not annoying. It's um, just quite a disembodied experience. Did you get invited to the premiere? Is that the first time you saw the film? I think I did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I must have. I must have. That must have been the first time I saw it. What was the film scene like in New Zealand at this time? Small, very hard working, spiking off in lots of directions. New Zealand hadn't become the big sort of production, post production um, machine that it is now. I think, you know, there's some well, obviously just a very sort of world standard special effects and post production coming out of the country and now. And it's sort of like, so there's. You're either in that kind of, uh, well, you know, first in class in the world, um, budget, big budget sort of projects or not. But back then it was more, it was, I think, more variety in the sizes of production. I'm, I'm not sure. It feels like that to me. I'm, I'm not, a, I can, as I'm saying this, I can sort of feel Twitter breathing down my neck thinking, uh, that's um that's not true, <laughs> but there are some statistics to say that's not true. But it, it was it was a small and intense scene, and people were were there's a lot of variety coming out. I think I think more variety than is coming out now. But that's heretical, that's heretical to say that. So you've got your own career. You are by the time Heaven comes out, you've written at least three novels. You've been involved with uh, the Funny Little Guy short. You've done a lot of things already. This might be a weird question, but does having heaven under your belt as far as being this now adapted author, does that open any doors for you? Yeah, it did, literally. It, it got me uh, an agent in the UK. I went over to London and I'd written my next novel, Shirka, and I sort of bumped into someone who said, I'll introduce you to someone else. And that got me, you know, an agent and and that sort of was the next of two or three books that were published, sort of came out of that. So it definitely worked for me in that way. Maybe I thought it would open some film doors, but as I'm saying that, maybe it wouldn't have. So how does reality come about for you then? I had uh, written a um, short film, The Alibi Girl, which was in the uh, 48-hour film festival for director Clinton Phillips. And... Jonathan King contacted me and he'd really liked the film and uh, we talked about developing it as a feature and I wrote a script for him in 2005 and he and uh, his producer went and made another film, Under the Mountain. But then after that, uh, about 2013, he contacted me about, he just wanted to make reality, make the script that I'd written for him in 2005. Uh, which he did. So it was a micro-budget affair. Did you have more of a hand in that than writing and then just kind of walking away from that one? Were you more uh, a behind-the-scenes guy? Um, I was involved in it because of the budget was so small. Um, you know, I was sort of buying coffees and stuff, um, but also working with Jonathan on um, some of the, some of the produ- production. When I was down, I went down to Wellington, where he lives, and he was shooting around there, and we... Um, so I was on set with him and um, the actors and just sort of being a gopher on some days and other days sort of having sort of high-level discussions with him about what we thought the scene was about. Yes, yeah, so I was more involved in that one. And then, again, in post, um, he was doing everything in post himself. So that was um, sort of went back to him after that. Well, that's got to feel a lot more gratifying if you can actually say, 
I helped make this rather than I'm sure that there's some sense of ownership with heaven, but uh, it sounds like you're right there on the front lines when it came to reality. Yeah, I still think as the writer, there isn't too much of a place for you once you've produced the script. You know, uh, to be honest, I think it just goes into other people's hands and um, obviously into the director's hands, but really sort of the editors and and so, and then if, you know, it's a bigger budget film into the hands of whoever's marketing it and maybe back to the editing suite again. So I, I don't know. It's kind of like parenting, you know, like you, um, you know, you're responsible for it, but you, you know, it, it's grown up and it's le- leading its own life quite rapidly. So it, it is, it is gratifying, but it will never be the same as, as writing a novel where, you know, I, I know what I, that I did everything in the novel and the novel's mine and I'm a hundred percent certain about it. Was in a movie, you know, you're always sort of saying, what if you did this? And and you do have differences of opinion that, and you think, well, as the writer, that's not going to count. You know, it, it just doesn't really. Once you've got the idea on the page, it, it moves away. So you're talking about the books on your shelves, and it sounds like you're a fellow uh, James Elroy fan. And I'm curious, what role does Auckland play in your books? Uh, like, I know James Elroy, he's, you know, the king of L.A., so where is Auckland in your work? Oh, it's everywhere. It's the um, – and it, it, I was very interested in it as a city objectively because it is um, a big city, uh, and it's – quite spread out and it has a lot as quite a good underbelly to write about you know in literary terms a lot a lot lot you can get your hands dirty with but it's changed also like uh, this is another thing that i've noticed as i've got older cities now are becoming more homogenized you know there are the same franchises in the city that you live in as in mine as in you know anywhere overseas and we're having very the cultural experience of the city i think is becoming less individual as um incomes rise as areas become more gentrified as the city uh becomes you know a safer and a better place to live i think it's a less interesting place to write about and i'm i'm interested in the late 19th 20th 21st century and the city's become a little more like a sort of domed science fiction city, um, clean and perfect and spotless and a great place to party, but not a place where you're finding the most interesting stories. I think there's a, 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 str- a strong tradition in literature um, and in filmmaking, but in literature very much to, in, in pulp to find in the stories in these, well, in the mean streets, I guess, right? And, and the streets aren't so mean anymore. In fact, they're, they're quite sort of delicate and well looked after and there's a Starbucks on the corner and there's less going on. So uh, it's a, a global shift that I think is, um, yeah, it's, it's the, the sort of the subject of the city is moving away as, you know, I get older. So the, the Auckland that I write about is a lot of it isn't there anymore. It's a lot of it's just in my memory. Tell me about, the church of John Coltrane and how it was to revisit some of these characters from heaven all these years later. I liked the idea of Robert as an architect. That was always central to the story in heaven that he's, he's someone who's creating a world. He's creating a fictional world because the things that he's designing aren't necessarily being built. I had the story about a man whose father had died and left him a, a jazz collection, you know, a collection of records. I thought, oh, it's Robert Marling's father. And there's sort of this music that's abandoned in a, um, an apartment 
in uh, downtown in a building that's about to be demolished. It goes back to that sort of the melancholy center of the character, which I um, was very drawn to when I was, when I was writing the book. I, the idea of these two people who live in imaginary worlds, you know, um, Robert, who's, who's working on the city that isn't built, and, and Heaven, who's having dreams of things that may or may not have happened. That, that was one of the things that I latched onto early when I was writing it. I have had the worst time trying to find that book. Oh, it's only in French. All right. Did you write it in French? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, it got tended. I only found a publisher for it in Paris. Um, the, in my French publisher put it out. I've just finished a new one, you know, and it's always you think, oh, is it, am I going to find a publisher for it? Is, is it going to get out? You know, it, it's nothing certain. Well, yeah. Tell me about your latest. The new one's called Blue Hotel. And it's uh, about a reporter who follows the mystery of a missing woman who goes missing twice and is never found twice. He sort of goes into an underworld. And it's quite pulpy. And it's set in the same in the same city as heaven. So Auckland, 1988, 89, 90. I was curious, as far as reality goes, as far as the release of it, is that available on DVD any place? We had it out on Vimeo. Um, no, it's not. I, we uh, got into a couple of festivals, in, but it hasn't. didn't find a release, no. It's, it's weirdly similar to Heaven. I mean, I was watching it. Uh, I watched Heaven again yesterday before this phone call, and um, I thought there are some strong similarities. It's very much about time shifting and, um, and a sort of father's relationship with his young son and against that kind of Auckland cityscape. So it actually has quite a lot in common. Back in the old days, it was nearly impossible to find books from New Zealand and Australia over here in the States, and now it's like, no big deal. I often see my books secondhand for quite a lot of money on eBay and stuff, which is why I moved to put some of them on as out as e-books. I do prefer the print copies. It's, it's the world's smaller. You know, you can get – I mean, you must find this with movies – if you want to get a DVD of something obscure that um, you can go and hunt it down. Well, Chad, thank you so much for your time. This has been wonderful. Oh, you're welcome. And thank you very much for looking up the film. I, um, I think, you know, I think it was sort of, it's strangely ahead of its time in that, you know, you sort of have trans protagonist and time shifting and you think that will be a Netflix series now, you know, that form has become suddenly uh, quite prevalent. The unreliable narrator, the 60s, 70s styling, the um, time shifts, um, the kind of counterculture, you know, you sort of see that in shows like Legion and Mr. Robot. And it's common. It's interesting that that sort of it, looking at the movie now, it seems, um, I mean, it's definitely of its time. It's it's much slower than a, a modern movie, but it um, definitely has a, elements that, a right at home and in kind of modern entertainment <laughs> modern entertainment Oh my god, I find myself I feel like I'm a social justice warrior this episode. You totally are. You totally oh, are. I don't want to be.
I agree with you, but I still I, there's still a lot that I admire about the movie, and I guess it's it's perhaps um, it is one of those things. that's a difference in perspective. I don't know. I mean, I don't want to take away from that either because I agree. It's just this is this is just about the level. You know, it's kind of like I, I, there's stuff about this movie I appreciated and admired, but it's like you know, yeah, it's like it's hard. It's, it's for coming from my perspective as a gay guy. It's just like it's hard to be like. And knowing trans people and knowing trans people who have been in abusive relationships and knowing gay guys who have been in abusive relationships. I mean, we haven't even talked about how it trivialized the abusive relationship. It was nice to see. I don't know. I don't know exactly how much context you can give an abusive relationship, but it's like, you know, I don't know. Uh, I don't know what to say about it. It's, it's, it's kind of weird. I don't know. There are some interesting aspects to the representation. And again, I'm not, I'm not in the, I'm I'm in a, a tricky position here because I I have to sort of look at it from more of the like blanket humanist point of view, and uh, I'm I'm not going to say that uh, that it, it it's a tremendously humanistic kind of film, but one of the, one of the things that did really strike me was that it, it's a movie that's rem- from that year that is remarkably unperturbed about its trans character. Um, it does not fill her in enough, uh, but it also doesn't. It doesn't make her race or her transness a uh, a particular problem within the world or within the plot that exoticizes her position. She's simply one of the she is you know again she's the the the, the magical character uh, which is which is a real problem and a real trope and she ends up you know serving serving the white guy but um sort of in comparison with uh you know a movie that I think is better but is also problematic like the crying game it's not this thing it doesn't turn into a big thing she's simply there in the world which is pretty uh, that's pretty remarkable for that time and it um people accept her more or less for who she is she ends up with Carl Urban Hottie at the end the movie is also filtered i think you know through through her through her point of view and she's the one that has the most agency in terms of making things happen in the film but then the big problem is that there's not the there's there's not the filling in of her character in after the fashion of of uh of jackie brown uh you know we don't we don't get her as the main character we get her as the main mover of the plot but then yeah problematically on behalf of this white guy so i find i find it to be this kind of interesting sort of interesting mixed bag in terms of the ways that it works and the ways that she is is represented you know in in the world and within you know this kind of underworld environment um uh, so I, I don't I don't know. Like, I, I definitely wouldn't make a case that it's in some way progressive. But I, I get I, rather than say progressive, the way that I would put it is like, I think it's hipper about her status within the world than a movie like The Crying Game is about uh, the Jay Davidson character, uh, Dill's status within that world, where there's much more of a sense of uh, exoticism and needing to build a portion of the plot around a kind of argument for acceptance for the character. And again, I think that that's a better film and I like that film and I don't mind, you know, the argument for acceptance, but I, I, I just kind of, I, I admire how this movie just blows past a lot of that stuff. I think there definitely is something in that this movie just kind of accepts this trans character as trans and nobody makes mention to it. That said, I was kind of wondering what kind of bar this was. Like, like in the beginning, we were all like, oh, it's a gay bar. 
Whoa, no, it's not a gay bar. Wait, they have a trans stripper and a gay bar? Like, okay, well, sure, that's fine. Uh, it's I mean, a straight bar. I, I haven't seen that. I'm sure it happens. And I'm glad that, you know, heterosexual guys in New Zealand apparently would go to a bar to see strippers and some of them, or one of them at least, would be a trans I mean, generally speaking, they would either all be trans women or none of them would be trans women. Generally speaking, maybe not here. And that's fantastic. And, you know, I'm not a straight guy, so I, I, I can't really tell you what kind of stripper bar I would go to as a straight guy. But, you know, it did kind of throw me. I was like, oh, okay. So Richard Schiff's character runs a gay bar. Um, I mean, the thing in the crying game is, you know, it, it's hilarious because, you know, you're following Stephen Ray's character. He's literally going into this gay bar and he literally does not even know. It's He literally doesn't even see that there are no women here, like, at all. It's like, you know, and, and you know, Jay Davidson <laughs> does her performance or his performance, excuse me, or Dill's performance. Dill's or her Jay Davidson actually is not trans. Um, you have to be very specific. I, I agree. I think it's interesting that his his transness is not really uh, an issue. Um, and I wish I could come up with another movie made before that where trans is not an issue and I know they exist. But it's I, – I don't know. I mean, I, I would ask and I would challenge people to ask themselves, why did the character have to be trans? Why was the character trans? Why was the character a person of color? What did those attributes bring to the narrative? And what did not dealing with any of those facts bring to the narrative? Why was this chosen? That would be something that I think I would ask or challenge people to think about when they saw the movie. I agree. I think those are really good questions for it. I mean, for my own part, I I, I found that it, it sort of it, – it created an interesting world. I was with you where at the beginning – uh, in the bar, I was like, oh, so it's a gay bar. And then it turns out maybe not to be I, 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 during it, I, we don't really see the other dancers uh, for very long ever as characters. But it definitely had me looking at them as like, oh, are they also, you know, trans or cross-dressing? Um, and, I, you know, I, I didn't I didn't have an easy answer for that. But um, it is a really interesting question. Uh as to uh, you know why 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 must the character be trans? And I know from the the you know the interview with uh, with Danny Edwards that the that um, they were specifically looking for a person of color or mixed race. I think was the was was the the thing that they were looking for uh, for for the for that role. Yeah, it's it's interesting not to. Uh, treat it as a big deal, uh, but on the other hand, there is that basic question of of the the logic of the world and the way that the story ends up working. Uh, why why does she have to be trans? Why does she have to be a person of color? I'm curious with this being said in New Zealand, if possibly she could be painted as being a Maori. I thought of that too. Yeah. Yep. And I know in some. Aboriginal cultures, the idea of someone who is transsexual also kind of lends themselves to being a being beyond a male and female, somebody who can be more spiritual in that way, somebody that can speak with the spirits and be a prognosticator like she is. Possibly, that's just an idea. 
I'm I'm glad you said that. I actually I don't know enough about the Maori culture or the or even the racial politics of New Zealand of the 90s, uh, which I'm sure are reasonably similar <laughs> to today, unfortunately or fortunately. Uh, but yeah, I, I think I had read something about that at some point. Uh, I mean, maybe the, maybe it was a maybe it was a comment on that. Uh, I'm not being from New Zealand. I don't know. This movie, like I mentioned before, is not easy to find. I did a little research. I don't know what was happening in 1998, but in 1998, get a load of all of these movies that were released. The Crow, Stairway to Heaven, Heaven or Vegas, Heaven Can Wait, Under Heaven, A City Called Heaven, Heaven and the Suicide King, Heavenly Eyes, Heavens with a Z, In Heaven as It Is on Earth, and Under Heaven. So trying to find this movie even on IMDb sometimes is almost impossible. There is no Wikipedia page for it. I actually look. There's no Wikipedia page at all. It's like this is I, – I have to congratulate you, Mike. You have found a movie that's obscure and made within the last – well, I was going to say 20 years, but we just missed it. It's like 25 years then. That's pretty good. That's that's really – and it's a very interesting little movie. I mean, it's worthy – I mean, certainly the fact that we're still talking about it. We haven't even gotten through half the plot. It's like you know, there's, there's a lot in it. Let's go ahead and take a break and play a preview for next week's show. It's the winner of three Academy Awards, like you've never seen it before. Who Framed Roger Rabbit 25th Anniversary Edition. I'm a tune. Tune made people laugh. For the first time on eye-popping Blu-ray, it's the edge-of-your-seat thriller that hits like a ton of bricks. We tunes may act idiotic, but we're not stupid. It's groundbreaking. The whole thing stinks like yesterday's diapers. A technically amazing feat. Allow me, mademoiselle. It says rabbit sea stars, not birds. Stars! Can we lose the playback, please? Tunes. I'm not bad. I'm just drawn that way. And that's not all. There's also three digitally restored shorts. What a Catch Who Framed Roger Rabbit 25th Anniversary Edition for the first time on Blu-ray. That's right. We'll be back next week with a movie that I find very problematic, Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Spencer and David. David, what is the latest with you, sir? Oh, my goodness. Well, I just had a wonderful interview with someone for the documentary that I'm making on Exorcist to the Heretic. I am super, super stoked. This is going to be so cool. I really hope to have a Kickstarter page up at some point uh, before the spring is out. Um, you know, life is always nipping at your heels, but it will be up at hereticsmovie.com. That's heretic with an S, hereticsmovie.com. And hope to have that up uh, by the end of the spring. Well, when you do, I will definitely post a link. And Spencer, what's keeping you busy? What I'm working on right now is I'm, I'm gearing up to do another uh, in a series of true life based quasi horror short films. Um, and actually, it, it's interesting. Uh, Watching Heaven was uh, was sort of uh, fascinating to me in, in uh, just in terms of timing, because in gearing up for this film, uh, you know, my movie has a character who is uh, a psychic. And one of one of my challenges in approaching the material is I don't believe in that stuff at all and so i had uh i i i I wanted um to create as uh believable and credible a psychic for this movie as uh as i could you know while i was writing and you know based on the the information that i was working from and 
actually, you know, made it a, a psychic who's much more credible than the real life person that, the, that this is based on, uh, at least to me. Uh, and one of the things that was interesting about heaven was uh, sort of, you know, seeing some of those problems worked out that uh, ultimately are interesting editorial problems that I'll have ahead of me when I shoot. Um, so I'm, I'm not, not saying that this, this movie will not be an influence on that one. I'm not really uh, going too far out of, um, you know, out of sequence. It's, uh, it, it's pretty chronological, but uh, there, there are some, there's some, some tricks I might be taking away from this movie uh, to s- sort of represent this um, second sight for a character. So that's exciting to me. Well, thanks again, guys, for being on the show, and thanks to everybody for listening. Please sign on over to the website, projection-booth.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. You'll also find links over to iTunes, where you can rate and review the show, and to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Donors get early access to every episode, as long as I'm not running late. Every donation and every rating we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world.
If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise.